Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo, Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo sets down its more recent dives into the world of cowboys, gangsters, and body snatchers, and settles upon the kind of story that requires all the refinement and dignity it can muster. Yes, any humor that you see in here today will be the observational satire of class born out of literary legend. What began as a novel from the mind of Jane Austen would become a property wrought with so many adaptations it boggles the mind at times. There's even one with zombies. It's kind of crazy. Kind of crazy. Yet, one must not forget that the golden age of Hollywood had its toe dipped into the world of Austen in what could be claimed as among the first filmed adaptations. And the only such place to find class enough to feature more stars than there are in heaven and production values to beat the band would be that of Metro Goldwyn Mayer. That's right, boys and girls. A comedy of manners and Metro is afoot as we dive into 1940s Pride and Prejudice. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. some of them at birth. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't drown me, Papa. Much too nice just being alive, even if I never had a husband. Now that you've been forewarned of my eagerness to dance with you, may I hope that you will do me the honor. I am afraid that the honor of standing up with you, Mr. Darcy, is more than I can bear. Pray excuse me. The loss is mine, I'm sure. An unhappy alternative is before you, Elizabeth. Your mother will never see you again if you do not marry Mr. Collins. And I will never see you again if you do. Do you know what you're saying? Yes, my darling. I'm asking you to marry me. What did you say to him? What did I say? What did I say? Mm-hmm. 
Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, in 1940, MGM unveiled to the world its vision of Jane Austen's celebrated novel. But the film had quite a rocky development and an equally interesting production. Yet, with all this in mind, all of this, all the normal stuff we go through on this show, we are left with an adaptation that would set the standard of elegance that one would lay at the feet of Austen adaptations to come. Just how influential is this 1940 outing, and where does it stand in the pantheon of film fans and Austin fans? To answer that question, we need a, f- both a film fan and an Austin fan. She is a journalist and podcaster for Real Nerds Podcast, and she can be seen on Twitter spoiling things faster than Joe Wright cuts to that shot of a hand flex. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Corinne Westerman. <laughs> Thanks for the introduction, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> Now let's uh, let's let's provide context. Um, you are berated uh, a bit too much by our co-host on Real Nerds, Ryan Frost, for the spoilers that you provide on. Uh... Sometimes it's deserved. Yeah, 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 but you're you're fair about it. You even your Twitter your Twitter name is now the Spoiler in Mandalorian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Spoiler in Mandalorian. <laughs> I don't remember when that changed, but when I saw it, I was just like, oh, I think it got to her. <laughs> like, I think it was like right around the time the book of Boba Fett came out, like that episode <laughs> about the Mandalorian. And I was like, I'm just, I was so riding the Mandalorian train. I'm like, I'm going to change my name. Spoiling Mandalorian. Here we go. Ryan Frost looks at it and he just goes, it makes sense. <laughs> I know, like, you guys have suggested I should change my name to, like, spoiling the classics before, but it kind of doesn't make sense for me. It, do- it doesn't make sense in general because these classics have been spoiled for years in retrospectives across the uh, across the land. You know how many times I've seen, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, it's played at every given point? You th- that's a huge spoiler. <laughs> oh, my gosh, <laughs> By yeah. By comparison, you know? I mean, that's part of what, when I go through catching the classics, that's part of what I talk about is... Some of those big plot points or, you know, character reveals or whatever they are mm-hmm. that have already been spoiled for me and how that changes my outlook on the movie. Mm-hmm. Which which culminated arguably with the rise of Skywalker, which was, uh, I know, I'm not here to open up old wounds. I'm here to reintroduce new wounds with this adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> I mean, it's not terrible. No. Let's get that right right off the bat. It's not what I would like. Thankfully, we have the 1995 version for that. The BBC <laughs> miniseries with Colin Firth and Jennifer L. Um, this is what it is. It was a product of the time. <laughs> and it's fine. Okay? Yeah, it's they're, fine. They're, I, I'm glad it exists. Again, I've said this about like every Austin adaptation. It's like if it got one person into Jane Austen who wasn't already then it did its job. There you go. And that's an optimistic way to look at it. Now, before we get into it, though, you're new to the Ballyhoo, technically, but you were on Shamley before talking about The Lady Vanishes. Yeah. Um, great and, uh, great episode. Great yeah, movie. La- Lady Britain, our superhero that hasn't gotten off the ground yet. <laughs> I mean, we had Captain Carter, so I think there's a market for it. We, can- we came very close. We came very close to, to having our dreams fulfilled, but Marvel just still hasn't answered our calls. Um, but... Uh, in addition to Real Nerds Podcast, you do a thing called Catching the Classics on the show and kind of around your Twitter feed where you talk about films that you haven't seen that are amid the classic pantheon. And that leads to my question for you. Like, when we talk about classics, I think Golden Age Hollywood is generally the standard for the word classics. Obviously, as time goes on, we're dealing with classics from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, but what got you into Golden Age Hollywood? What what is what is your exposure to it? Um, that would be courtesy of my parents. Nah. I grew up on a lot of those. Well, we 
we would say older movies now, but they probably came out more like 50s and 60s. A lot of the John Wayne cowboy movies. My mom is a big Gone with the Wind fan for whatever that means. So, you know, what? I I'm, not, know. I'm not going to disrespect your mother in your house. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and I love Casablanca and just yeah. like, you know, Roman Holiday, anything with like Cary Grant, Audrey Hepburn. Gregory Peck, like, I am immediately on board. I didn't hear Humphrey Bogart's name in that list. I mean, I've only ever seen, like, three movies that he's in. Which ones? I see Casablanca. Casablanca, Sabrina. Sabrina. I've seen The Maltese Falcon, although it's been a really long time. Oh, you could do for a rewatch. It's good. Okay. It's it's, it's fun. I I go back to that at least once a year. But I love Sabrina, too. Oh, yeah. Although, I I prefer the 90s version over the 50s, but, I mean, I love them both. I don't think that's controversial anymore. I used to think that's controversial, but the more I talk to people, like, my girlfriend likes both versions of Sabrina. So, like, I I get it, you know? Do I want the Humphrey Bogart version? Of course. But Harrison Ford version, just as good, too. I just love those old movies and just, like, the play between, like, lights and shadows, the black and white film. It it feels so stylized and so specific to that era mm-hmm. and you never see that anymore. No, you don't. And that actually kind of, that actually segues into this particular adaptation because we're talking about an MGM film and MGM, unless they were getting one of their, one of their more genre driven fare in line, their main style would have been lavish production value, musical, uh, was a big factor for them, but also these kind of costume pictures as well. What is your history, if at any, with this version of Pride and Prejudice from 1940? I remember watching it years ago. I mean, I feel like I go on a Jane Austen kick about, I don't know, once a year, once every other year, and just devour as much Jane Austen content as I can. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I came across this movie and I watched it and I was like, well, that was something. So, (laughs) I mean, that was after I had seen the 1995 version, after I had seen the 2005 version, after I had seen Bride and Prejudice, which is a Bollywood version, which is actually pretty good. I I mean, for a modernized adaptation of, you know, Pride and Prejudice that's set like simultaneously in like India and Europe slash America... It's pretty good. That's not bad. No, but but you and and that actually you talking about being in an Austin kick. One of the reasons that we I I pitched you on doing this is because you are a major Austin fan. Oh um, yeah. And and this is a this is a fandom that I didn't realize how huge it was. I should have. I should have figured. But you know me, I'm an idiot. And so Well, I mean it's hard to not it's hard to know how big a fandom is when you're not part of it. That's true. That's very fair. I mean, I have no idea how big Hello Kitty is, other than it's one of the biggest franchises of all time. Hello Kitty and Jack Benny are the two fandoms that you don't realize how big it is until (laughs) until you get into it. I would have no idea. I would think Jack Benny is so obscure. Like, I only know who that is because you. And And apparently, there's like. You can do like a Jack Benny Comic Con. Like, that's crazy to me. I wish it was called Jack Benny Comic Con. (laughs) You just have a. You have a huge Hall H panel discussing one joke from one episode 50, 70 years ago. Um, no, it's, it's, but the, the Austin fandom, I, I guess with my history on Austin in general, I could not get into this stuff when I was younger. I talked about this with you when it came to the 2005 Pride and Prejudice. I saw that film because 
I had seen Atonement and I wanted to see the work that Joe Wright had done. This version of Pride and Prejudice I must have seen on television at some point, and I picked it up later when I picked up the DVD, and I was like, oh, we're, we're going to do this. Um, but it's such a star-studded film that I must confess, as a spoiler up front, I'm still enamored by it, even though it is not what we have discussed as faithful to this to this story. I know. Like, when I first heard about it, I do remember thinking, oh my gosh, Laurence Olivier as Mr. Darcy? Should be perfect, right? It should be. Because I'm like, he's handsome. Mr. Darcy's like, you know, the classic literary hero. Everyone loves him. Everybody thinks he's like super dreamy. Thank you, Colin Firth. Yep. Um, (laughs) 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 If only Sir Lawrence Olivier had a wet shirt in the movie, it would be perfect 10 out of 10. Nobody would ever talk about that, bad about that movie. I still haven't seen Lawrence Olivier's whole filmography. Does he may have a shirt, wet shirtless, or a wet shirt scene that we're not seeing somewhere? You know? I mean, not in this movie. Not in which this is movie. No, the the kicker. Yeah, no, he's perfectly clothed. I can guarantee you, he's perfectly. clothed. He does look good in this movie, though. I will give him that. <laughs> yeah, he does look good. In fact, everybody looks good. Everyone looks good. There's not. There's not a. There's not a down. Like there, there's no nobody ill costumed in this film, which is, which is, which makes sense when you're talking about the <sighs> Tiffany of Studios. If you're talking about the Tiffany of Studios, MGM at this time, they're riding high. They're they made a deal in 1930 and during the production of Gone with the Wind, MGM made a deal to release Gone with the Wind and have the rights to do so in exchange for giving David Selznick Clark Gable. So they're riding high on money. They're riding high on prestige with other films that they had done in 1939, considered one of Hollywood's greatest years. It's no secret that this movie was always going to look beautiful and feel beautiful. Yeah, but it still takes me out because that's not the Regency period clothing. Yeah. Uh, the bigs, the big dresses, the big sleeves, the dorky looking bonnets. <laughs> I mean, not like they had bonnets, but they were not quite so elaborate. No. You know, the Regency era, like that that style of clothing is very much, it's very slim, very, not like form-fitting, but it's definitely more form-fitting than like your big hoop skirt or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's not quite so elaborate and over the top. It's very, it's about like simplicity and like nature and getting back to nature. Yeah. And... Some for for me as a person who hasn't read the book but has seen the 2005 one with Kira Knightley and Hanflex, um, <laughs> we'll get to it because I I'm a, I'm a convert to this little movement that you made me aware of. Oh, um, so many memes, so many memes, so many. I and saw gifts, I was and gifts. Yes, and I watched a video today where they were taking John Mulaney jokes and putting them over clips from the 2005. Pride and Prejudice, <laughs> and it was amazing. <laughs> so we're going to have to watch that later. Yes, absolutely. But before we get to that, you brought up the fact that the the costumes aren't period accurate. Well, it's because they, they found a logic point because they set the story 40 years after the setting of the book itself in order to justify those costumes sure. to their mind. And I do think, like as far as I know, the costumes that we see in the movie are accurate to like a later period, like mm-hmm. the 1850s, maybe 1860s. But I know like the 1850s definitely had like those huge sleeves, the big puffy sleeves. Yeah. So I don't know. I 
it's just so weird to see everybody walking around in like Gone with the Wind style outfits in Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, it, it's 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 certainly more lavish than what I than what I saw in the 2005 version. And and for those who are wondering, yes, the 2005 version is going to be my main point of entry because I'm not as astute in Austin adaptations. However, I am a Golden Age Hollywood nut. And I would like to talk about this version, too, which I argue is just as enjoyable as the 2005 version. But we, when we get into the plot, which, you know, discussing the plot of Pride and Prejudice, you know, like we're going to be discussing this truncated plot, essentially. Yeah, it's a, at least the BBC miniseries is about six hours. Mm-hmm. And that gets almost every single scene from the book. Yeah, it does cut a couple of things down and kind of shortens a few things. But. I mean, otherwise, it's like word for word, scene for scene from the book. Right. So anytime I watch like a feature length movie, I'm always like, they're going to cut, they're going to trim, they're going to combine scenes, which is fine. I'm like, I just need the spirit of the thing to be there. Yeah. And in this movie, we kind of get that. Yeah. The, the last like 30 minutes, I'm like, I don't even know what just happened. Well, hang tight, because before we go, before, before we go into any plot stuff, we've got to talk about are two big leads here. They're mm. two they're two big names. You can't ignore them. Yes, we, Greta Garbo. Greta Garbo, no, <laughs> no. That was something that he and I were joking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I was like, yeah, Greta Garbo, she did a good job in the movie. Yeah, Gre- Greta Garbo, <laughs> I don't think would have been, I think Louis B. Mayer would have been like, no, no, no. Greta, I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a hard ass, but um, I, I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you. You know, they just just, you're no, there's no way you're playing Elizabeth Bennett. This is outrageous. <laughs> no, I think Greer Garson does an excellent job in the movie. She's got like that very playful attitude, mm-hmm. and she has a little bit of that, like, I guess, kind of pride about her. That, and then and that's very, you know, characteristic of Elizabeth in the novel is she doesn't admit it, but she is a little bit proud. Yeah. Like, she does kind of carry herself like, mm, I'm better than all of you because I'm smart. Not because I'm rich, but because I'm smarter than all of you. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can see through all of your tomfoolery and where that's what she thinks. Um, we know better, right? Right. <laughs> With the whole Wickham deal, but. Well, let's let's get into that right there. Let's mm-hmm. talk about Greer Garson. So, she's born on September 29th, 1904 in Manor Park, East Ham. Uh, and she's an only child. She read French and 18th century literature at King's College London. She took her postgrad at the University of Grenoble. Uh, and then while pursuing her acting dreams, she was made the head of a research library of Lintas, L-I-N-T-A-S, for the marketing department of Lever Brothers. Makers of Swan, the new white floating soap that's pure as fine Castiles. But... Did you know that she had a co-worker there, a very famous co-worker, Corinne? I did not. Who was it? What if I told you that he was a certain tiger in a certain book set in the jungle? Um, are you talking about... George Sanders. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, George Sanders, the one and only George Sanders, who will be talked about because he's George Sanders. You mean the creep from The Ghost of Mrs. Beer? You mean the creepy cousin from Rebecca? Yes. But also... The world's best best friend slash sidekick in a movie, Ford and Correspondent. Yeah, that George Sanders. Mm. You haven't seen Ford Correspondent, I have haven't. you? Oh my god! Oh my god! You need to watch it. It's so good. Um, 
But he apparently was convinced by Greer Garson to go into acting. Mm. So if it wasn't for Greer Garson, we wouldn't have Shere Khan the Tiger. <laughs> well, I mean, we probably would. It would just be somebody else. He wouldn't have been anybody as good as George Sanders. <laughs> yeah, he's also in uh, the portrait of Dorian Gray that Ryan likes. Yes, exactly. Everybody loves George Sanders. That's the bottom line. I mean, he's kind of like Vincent Price. Like, he just has one of those really memorable voices mm -hmm. and you just, you always know who he is. Yeah. If I, if I were to hear somebody, like, if I literally, if I hear him going, Mowgli, like, I'm like, oh, God, no, <laughs> evil. <laughs> but then he, again, you've got to watch Foreign Correspondent because he plays like this, like, chummy, sidekicky best friend character and it's really cool to watch him just be laid back. <laughs> Like he's, I, I mean, I just can't. Like, I hear that voice now, and I just think of, like, evil person, which I'm sure, like, George Sanders in real life was just, like, an angel. But, like, his voice, I associate with evil characters. Yeah. So if he plays a good guy, that's just going to be weird for me. I understand completely. Nevertheless, when you watch Foreign Correspondent, you'll be like, nope, he's good. He's good. Um, now, her earliest appearances were in the Birmingham Repertory Theater starting in 1932. And I thought this was interesting. <clears throat> she appeared in television's earliest years. Mm -hmm. She was part of live transmissions used as an experimental service of the BBC from Alexandria Palace. Among the things she did was Twelfth Night, with, which is considered to be one of the first known televised versions of Shakespeare. And this is in the 30s. So this is early, early television. Like, I wonder who she played. Does it say? I didn't see it, but uh, but mm. I just know. Like, I don't know. I'm not a Shakespeare guy either, so you're gonna have to you're gonna have to help me out there. I'm trying to think. Is it Olivia? Is the no? Hmm. Who's the gal? Oh, I can't think of her name. Let me see. She's the. Well, Olivia is like the love interest, and I can't remember because the one gal like disguises herself as a guy. Hmm. And I can't remember what her name is. But anyway, it's not really important. I'm just curious. But it says that, well, the the research that I saw said that she was just part of an excerpt. So, but it doesn't oh. say who she played. So that's, that's unfortunate. But think about it. This is our first television star. One of our first television stars is Greer Carson. Technically. Don't, I mean, don't know if this, don't know if this kinescope still exists. But. I mean, I wouldn't mind seeing her face on my TV. Yeah, I know. Granted, it, given how old it is, you'd be sifting through a lot of scratch and dirt. But um, now she um, was discovered by Louis B. Mayer while he was out talent scouting in the UK. Um, and he signed her over to a contract in 1937. But for the first 18 months of that contract, she had a back injury. That prevented her from doing much. And that combined with Louis B. Mayer trying to find the right property for her led to her contract almost being dropped. Thankfully, it wasn't because she was cast in her first big role in Goodbye, Mr. Chips with Robert Donat. Um, and when you watch Goodbye, Mr. Chips, she's amazing in it. She's so amazing in it that she won or she was nominated, I should say, for the Oscar for Best Actress. She lost, of course, to Vivian Lee. Who might come back up in this conversation? Who knows? Um, I don't know. She might have been married to some dude. Um, eh. um, uh, now, but then this leads her to being cast in Pride and Prejudice. Sort of, almost. But before we get into that, let's talk about our, our, our other big star of the night. Uh, Kenneth Branagh. Oh, I'm sorry. No, uh, Lawrence Olivier. Mm. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, Kenneth Branagh. Uh, portraying Lawrence Olivier for this uh, th for this evening because um, all I can think about is my week with Marilyn, apparently. Mm. Um, he was born in Dorking, Surrey, 
Dorking. England. Dorking. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I'm not... I, no comment. No. I mean, the English just make fun of themselves. <laughs> like, they write their own jokes. <laughs> They're the Jack Bennies of this universe. Just self-deprecation humor all across the board. <laughs> like, I, I, I... No joke needed. No, you, you, no. You just... You're just doing our jobs for us, aren't you, Does, England? Do you think that because we're real nerds in Britain, we'd be dorking nerds or something like that? I don't know. Like I, I, Real dorks? Real dorks. Real yes. dorkings. Real dorkings. Yes, there we go. That's the British version of real nerds. There we go. <laughs> now, um, uh, he was born, though, in Dorking, Surrey, uh, to a reverend, um, uh, youngest of three. Um, and his father apparently had acting aspirations. Um, he, he was um, reportedly a great preacher with a lot of great delivery. Mm. Um, Olivier said, "My father went. Uh, my father went to drop knew when to drop the voice, when to bellow about the perils of the hellfire, when to slip in a gag, when suddenly to wax sentimental. The quick changes in mood and manner absorbed me, and I have never forgotten them." So he took a lot of cues from his father on that. And his father was a little bit pushy into him getting into the dramatic arts. He actually encouraged him to enter the Central School of Speech Training and Dramatic Arts in 1924. And their sister, his sister had apparently gone there. So that helped with him getting a scholarship because his sister was well-beloved by the school's founder. Um, prior to this, though, he had done school productions of Julius Caesar, Twelfth Night, and Taming of the Shrew at the age of 10. The age of 10 years old. I'm shocked. I mean, we did Midsummer Night's Dream when I was in fifth grade. Where's my Oscar? <laughs> I mean, just because you did Shakespeare at age 10 doesn't mean shit. It's, well, how about this? Let's, let's move aside from the Shakespeare for a moment. Um, he then starts with the Royalty Theater in 1928, where he meets his first wife, Jill Esmond. A pretty crass mistake, marrying her later on, he would say. I insisted on getting married from a pathetic mixture of religious and animal promptings. She had admitted to me that she was in love elsewhere and could never love me as completely as I would wish. Um, now, moving on to his career and how that will pertain to his marriage down the line, uh, he created the original role of Stanhope in Journey's End, directed by James Whale, and... He played the role the first night, and he t turned down the West End tour to play Bo Jest, which went on to bomb. Journey's End went on to very successful runnings on the West End, and then went on to become the debut feature film of James Whale for Tiffany Pictures. I am shocked at how bad a choice that is. <laughs> But I don't know if that's because he felt that Bo Jest was maybe a little bit more of a better role for him. I don't know. What I do know is that his luck starts to pick up a little bit more. He then goes on to play Victor Prynne in Noel Coward's Private Lives, which took him to the West End and Broadway. This led to Hollywood beckoning him over in 1931 for a two-film contract set at $1,000, where... He made the films Friends and Lovers and Westward Passage, and then he's loaned out to Fox for the yellow ticket. He then goes back to London to make two films, Perfect Understanding and No Funny Business. Then he was to star opposite Greta Garbo mm. in Queen Christina, but he was let go two weeks into filming due to lack of chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if only some movies did that, because I do feel like there are movies made today where they just 
pick two big stars' names out of a hat, and they don't give a shit whether they have chemistry. Louis, why did you bring to me this sexless freak? <laughs> Get him out of my room. <laughs> That's my Garbo. Um, <laughs> it's not good. Now, while he's back in England, though, on the theatrical circuit for the old Vic, with plays like As You Like It, he begins an affair in 1936 with Vivian Lee. Dun dun dun. No, I think the the technical term is dun 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 dun. Um and um uh they would end up starring alongside together in Fire Over England, which I I didn't look into the I like that title. That title sounds cool. It does. Yeah, I know. Fire over England. Does a Zeppelin catch on fire or something? No, probably. If anything, it's given this is 1936. Maybe it's war themed. Who knows? Like maybe maybe a Zeppelin does crash over. Who knows? Um, Now, in 1938, though, as he's amid his affair with Vivian Lee, he is lured by a salary of fifty thousand dollars to play the role of Heathcliff in 1939's. Wuthering Heights, directed by William Wyler. A production that apparently caused a lot of rifts with Olivier. He had tensions with Merle Oberon and uh, apparently wasn't adapting well to Wyler's style of directing. But apparently it taught him a lot because he went on to keep making films. Because <laughs> uh, I can't imagine if you piss off William Wyler that you're going to last in the business long without having made some form of recompense. Um, now, Lee joined him a month later because partially Larry was there and partially because I intend to get the part of Scarlett (laughs) O'Hara. That's a story for another day. Long story short, though, Laurence Olivier in Wuthering Heights is such a success that he gets his Oscar nomination for Best Actor, doesn't win, Hmm. Um, and he then is cast in Rebecca and then cast in this. So he works for Selznick, and then goes over to Metro Golden Mare. So he's just dealing with control freak after control freak. Like this 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 makes a lot of sense why somebody like him would go over to London to make Hamlet to get an Oscar over here just to be treated correctly. Um, Interesting that he gets all these like, you know, romantic leads from classical literature mm-hmm. all around the same time. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that he I mean, if he, I guess if he had such a success with Wuthering Heights, it makes sense. His reputation on the stage, I think, made him such a commodity. Like, if in, like in, there's a documentary out there called 1939, the, the Greatest Year in Hollywood, that says, like, that one of the historians says, like, they cast a virtual unknown in Laurence Olivier for Wuthering Heights. And you look at the $50,000 price tag combined with... Lawrence Olivier's stage experience and previous film work. It's not that he's an unknown. It's that he's not a star. And $50,000 is not anything to sneeze at. It's enough to Especially get... Especially in old-time money. No, it's not. Yeah, it's 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 enough to get him over the over the channel. So I would... I would I, shoot, would you... Would you accept fifty thousand dollars to play Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights? Karen? I mean, yeah, <laughs> I definitely ain't making that money right now. There you go. It it, it might be a little weird, but I mean, hey, you know what? We, I don't even like Wuthering Heights, and I'd do it. <laughs> <laughs> Screw that, Corinne. You're on Wuthering Heights, Corinne. You're wanted on set. This is horseshit. All right, fifty <laughs> grand in my pocket. <laughs> Exactly. Um, now, let's get into the production. Now, the timeline of this is interesting because this originally was a property that was picked up by Irving Thalberg. Irving Thalberg was the boy genius, the boy wonder, the wunderkind 
of MGM previously. Now, I think Universal. it's called Wonder Kid. Wonder Wonderkind. Wonder it's a Ted Lasso reference. Oh God, dang it! Why do I need to get Apple TV? Yes. Now, um, uh, but Irving Thalberg was the boy genius. He everything he touched turned to gold. When it came to his unit over at MGM, he died of a heart attack very, very young um, and left his widow, Norma Shear, um, still over at MGM. Uh, Norma Shear was a big star that Thalberg was a star that Thalberg made bigger over time. And Shearer was tapped originally for this property and would tell that that's what tells me that Thalberg had this in mind for sure from the get-go and there was talks of them adapting this as far back as 1936 so just up until Thalberg's death now the adaptation of this book is condensed at best as we are going to talk about and that probably is due to Helen Jerome Helen Jerome wrote the stage adaptation for the London stage in 1935 of Pride and Prejudice. So my guess is that it's condensed based on her treatment and not necessarily from the screenwriters themselves. Because if you're doing a stage version of Pride and Prejudice, you're going to have to wrap some stuff up super quickly. You can't be there for six hours with Colin Firth in a wet t-shirt. Because some of those properties weren't in vogue yet um and one of them wasn't even born yet (laughs) um so we we but nevertheless it makes sense that they go this route now the timeline on this gets even crazier so we have norma shearer in 1937 signing a new metro deal for six pictures and among the things that she is going to be tapped for is pride and prejudice the first one being marie antoinette um, and among the people labeled to produce this film was Eddie Mannix, who was the notorious fixer uh, for the MGM studios who kept the ledgers and also took care of a lot of problems. Mm. Um, if anybody has uh, seen Hail Caesar, uh, it, there's a fictionalized version of Eddie Mannix in it. And if you've seen the movie Hollywood Land, they outright portray him as somebody who may or may, or may not have had George Reeves killed. (laughs) Uh, Don't know. We'll never know. Said to be suicide. Could be murder. Who knows? (laughs) Um, Now, Shearer then resumes work at Metro uh, to uh, go on for this adaptation among her other films. Then we have this little piece of news that I found interesting from August 16th, 1939. I'm showing you. Shearer's pride to be made in London. Hmm. To be made in London. There were plans for Norma Shearer and Clarence Brown, Metro director, will go to London for the forthcoming production there of Pride and Prejudice. So that's another director attached to this. The main one that's attached to this is George Cukor, and he's there up until the very last minute. Um, Robert Donat was penciled in for the male lead. Miss Shearer, now abroad, is conferring with studio officials in England, but returns to Hollywood for final okays before the production gets underway. Now... London's being attacked. (laughs) Yikes. I find it strange that MGM, a studio that barely wanted to get involved in acknowledging that there was a threat in Nazi Germany, um, or at least publicly they wouldn't acknowledge it, would have the audacity to try to pull a production in London at this time. Um, 
Of course, they don't do it because the bombings are happening and they're not going to risk their high commodity stars over in London while London's being bombed. Um, But still, it's interesting because I don't hear a lot about other American productions wanting to go overseas to make the film itself. And the only reason that I could think of MGM wanting to do it is that it's another piece of publicity that they could add to their marker of just like filmed in England, the home of Jane Austen, you know. Yeah, I guess I don't know. It depends on if they were planning to use like real locations or if they just wanted to cast more British people in it, maybe for authenticity. It's possible. Uh, it's it's definitely possible. Um, now, uh, Greer Garson comes into the picture. The report here. The, the report here comes at January 11th, 1940. Variety reports, major shuffle in stellar assignments as Metro erases Greer Garson from lead in Susan and God and gives her the star part in Pride and Prejudice, which had heretofore been indicated for Norma Shearer. Understood Joan Crawford, who is en route from New York, will go into Susan with Frederick March opposite. So Pride script was ready for shooting at this point. And they have George Cukor assigned to this. And there are a lot of up in the airs before Lawrence Olivier gets in here. One of them was Robert Donat. Another one that I found interesting was Clark Gable, <laughs> which I do not see at all. Oh, he would have been a very interesting Mr. Darcy. I don't know how I feel about that. It's a good thing that he plays Brett Butler and we have Sir Lawrence Olivier playing You know something, Mr. Elizabeth? Darcy. I had to flex my hand and flex it often. Um, nevertheless, though, Clark Gable obviously does not star in this movie. Thank goodness. Okay, thank goodness. But um, but uh, what's interesting is that among the pairings that Lawrence Olivier reported were going to be Vivian Lee and Clark Gable and then him and Vivian Lee. And apparently Lawrence Olivier only agreed to make this film because he thought Vivian Lee was going to star opposite him. So when she might have been an interesting Elizabeth Bennett, because I can kind of see elements yeah. of Scarlett O'Hara in Elizabeth Bennett, like that kind of. You know, that playfulness and she kind of has like a little bit of an attitude and she kind of doesn't like to take shit from people. I I guess that's fair. That's very fair. I think you need to be more. I always figure Vivian Lee to be a lot more. Like Scarlett is definitely more unrefined. Like she's definitely more of a brat. Yeah. And Lizzie is. She's more polite. I think I I think Vivian Lee doesn't convey compassion the same way that Greer Garson does. And a lot of my Greer Garson like bias will be coming from Mrs. Miniver because that is one of the kindest, like most heartfelt roles I've ever seen in a movie hands down. So I don't think she couldn't have done it. I just think it would have been very different. I think we'd be talking about something different and it'd be an interesting discussion. No doubt. Although if apparently her and Sir Lawrence Olivier were in a real life relationship, they might have had some pretty good on-screen chemistry. They were in a number of films together, so... I mean, I wouldn't say Greer Garson and Lawrence Olivier have great chemistry. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm not I'm not feeling anything particular. They don't I think stand out as bad, but they don't stand out as, like, amazing either. I think it's suitable for the movie. Yeah. It's not, su- it's not like... What's the last time I've seen, like, the most... Like energetically, energetically, like the the biggest chemistry on like I, I think people always pointed to Mr. and Mrs. Smith like the chemistry was off the charts for Pitt and Jolie, 
like that kind of chemistry. I don't I don't see it here because I have this layer when it comes to period adaptations of things are going to be reserved anyway. But the thing that overrides that is that I've seen Kira Knightley and Matthew McFadden have wonderful chemistry as Bennett and Darcy. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it just seems like they picked two of the finest actors off the London stage they could have gotten at this time and stuck them in a very wonderful prestige piece to get a, get, the, to get their claws in. And to be fair, I think in this 1940s version, we don't have a lot of scenes where Lizzie and Darcy are together and they both like each other. Yeah, no, no. There's, the, the animosity is thick. In fact, a lot of their relationship by the film's end is assured the moment that it's clear that Liz Bennett loves him back because my impression of it from 2005 is that you have sexual tension that's allowed to show MGM is not going to show that kind of sexual tension <laughs> let alone yeah, there's not really any of that in the book well, I think that was some th- that's that the was adaptation some, again right, I'm, again yeah. I'm going off of that adaptation but I think it's it seems to me, maybe it, maybe it's not in the book, but it seems to me that there's like, there's something. There's sure. a spark. Like, again, both the 1940s and the 2005 version have, like, they're both products of their time. And mm-hmm. you can see that, especially in the proposal scenes in respective films, where in the 2005 version, there is that kind of like, you know, they're moving close to each other. They're like, you know, eyeing each other's lips. Like, they're are they going to kiss? Like, you can really feel the tension and the, you know, chemistry between them. And then in the 1940s when it's this very like over the top and just kind of like, you know, romantic and suave and gentlemanly sort of thing, you know, very right. old Hollywood. Yeah, it's it's but there's also moments of flirting that we'll we'll touch upon. Now, we're going to go ahead and jump into the plot because there are production stories along the way as some of the scenes go on. Mm. But I will point out that the director of this film ended up not being George Cukor. Uh, George Cukor, known uh, known for his women's pictures of the era, not the least of which was The Women, which was all about men. Um, it was a film that featured only women, uh, which was a rarity for that time. Um, had Norma Shearer in it alongside Rosalind Russell and Joan Crawford and a slew of others. Uh, Cukor is replaced at the last minute because of his commitment to Susan and the Gods, Susan and God. By Robert Z. Leonard, who was seen as an efficient, reliable director from MGM. He does have a little bit of history that is interesting. He was born in Chicago on October 7th, 1889. With his first wife, Mae Murray, who was a silent film actress, they formed the company Tiffany Pictures, which put out Journey's End. So everything's connected today. (laughs) I mean, think about it. Everything's there's, an MCU. There's like 50 people in old Hollywood back in the day. So, <laughs> you know the way I say there's only like 50 British actors today? Because then that way, if you watch like any 10 British productions, you're going to see the same 50 actors in all of them. Exactly. But um, arriving upon MGM, he ended up directing such films as The Divorcee and The Great Siegfeld, both of which were nominated for Best Picture and The Great Siegfeld won. So he's the helmer of a Best Picture winner. Um, and the divorcee is one of the pre-code standards of its era. Now he's known by the nickname of Pop, 
so they would call him Pop on set. Um, and he was brought in late by MGM for this film because of his reputation as somebody who could get the job done, which seems to me why this is an adaptation of a literary classic that has virtually no... It's not a visually striking movie from like a camera standpoint. It's a set design, costume designer movie. But there's nothing with the camera that really ups the ante here. It's not like we're talking about like like what would what Rebecca can do with that kind of old aesthetic setting. This film can't do or Gone with the Wind even. Like we'll bring Gone with the Wind into it. There is scope and an actual vision to mm-hmm. Gone with the Wind, whereas Pride and Prejudice is very flat, very typical angles. I think it sort of works for the comedy of manners vibe that goes into it, especially. Right. It's almost more more like a stage production of just kind of like setting the camera down and just letting the actors work. Right. Now, there are moments, though, and we'll get into them, especially the, the, the proposal scene with Collins, I think, is the best shot scene in the movie because it is an example of great blocking and theatrical blocking at that but let's just jump right into oh, mr collins the, yeah mr collins is uh, what a character you know we'll talk about this mr collins versus the other mr collins because there's okay <laughs> let's get into it we open up on the cast uh, we open up on the title card and we get the cast divided by their houses by their locations, By yeah. their locations, yes. And I like I f- that. That's I, very different. I like that. And as an idiot, I find that helpful. <laughs> because there was a time when I was a kid where if I'd watched something of this kind of period ilk, I would not know who was who. Now as I'm older, I'm like, oh, of course I know who Mr. Bennett is. He's the one who's regretting all of his decisions in life. And of course he's Donald Sutherland. <laughs> um, or... Yeah, I, I know who Kira Knightley is. She's that gal from Pirates of the Caribbean, so she's Liz Bennett. But I just liked how they treat it with some form of elegance. Like, And unlike MGM films of this era, it doesn't have the title card over the lion. There's like this visage of a lion that normally pops up in MGM title cards at this time. Right, I think Wizard of Oz is that way, right? Uh, no, they don't. Um, they do it with a thin man, shop around the corner. God, you know... I remember The Wizard of Oz not having it because I remember it being set a- across the dustiness of Kansas, like the dust the dust aesthetic. Hmm. hmm. Well, I'll have to go back to Wizard of Oz for that. And hey, maybe I mean, we'll- I just remember seeing the line and then Wizard of Oz pops up. No, well, no, it's like it's like a um an imprint. It's not the logo. It's like a it's like a backdrop. Oh, I of see. A lion. Yeah, sorry. No, 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 no. Um, but we open up and Mrs. Bennett is they're dress shopping. They're dress shopping, yeah. yeah. And we get a really, I think it's a fairly decent introduction to these characters. Um, we establish right off the front, uh, right off the bat, that Mrs. Bennett is the head of a marriage farm designed to <laughs> get her daughters married and married rich. Well, because she has five daughters, she mm-hmm. has no son. So mm-hmm. the estate is entailed away to Mr. Collins. Meaning that Mr. When, Collins. <laughs> yes. Meaning that when Mr. Bennett, the father, dies, mm-hmm. basically they will have nowhere to live. Mm-hmm. They will have no money. No. Nope. So 
she needs to get them husbands so that they're provided for. And what let's let's be clear, they got five daughters. Let's let's name out let's roll call these okay. daughters because Jane is the eldest. Jane is the eldest. She's the prettiest. I mean, yeah. she's considered the most attractive by standards at the time. Yeah, okay. Then gotcha. you got Lizzie, who's yeah. the second, mm-hmm. and she's like the witty but also sort of pretty one. Like she's not as pretty as Jane, but she's She's still considered a beauty for the era. Gotcha. Then you got Mary, who's the quiet, bookish one. And in the book, she's also just like, just kind of doesn't want anything to do with the rest of her family. Like, she's just off in the corner we, we talked doing to, her own little thing. We've talked about this before with the 2005 version. She's the goth of the family. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little bit. Um, in this film, though, she is bookish nerd with glasses big old glasses oh my gosh when they said that line i just i wanted to throw something at the tv i'm like how dare you vilify people with glasses this is why like we have had to overcome so much marcia hunt who plays mary she's still alive what 104 years old baby marcia hunt representing the mgm stock to this day yeah it's funny i found this about her she was blacklisted. Mm. She and and despite all this, she never lost touch with her beliefs. Up to the up to, up to her later life, she supported gay marriage, environmental protection, global warming awareness. I need to find Marsha Hunt and interview her. Oh my gosh! Yeah, let me know if you do. <laughs> I'm gonna. I gotta try this. Um, yeah, she unfortunately. Is uh, was a, a victim of McCarthyism, but she is the now oldest living member of that group that was vilified by the witch hunt. So um, here, though, she is apparently bad at singing and playing the piano. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is like Mary's considered like the she's the plainest one of the family. She's not pretty. She can't really do anything. She likes to think that she can. Just because it's like, well, you know, some of her sisters are beautiful and some of her sisters are, you know, they're outgoing and they're sociable. So she's like, I have to play and sing. You know, that's like going to be my thing. And she's not even that good at it. You know what she can do? You know, maybe maybe Mary after this movie, she takes her glasses, she breaks them in half. She goes, I'm getting into political activism for the left wing. Fuck you, dad and mom. (laughs) Maybe. I like that idea. I I like the idea. Although as we see at the very end of this movie, she ends up getting with like a tutor or a librarian or some some random fuck. I'm like, who is this dude? A fellow cheap musician. (laughs) (laughs) They're putting something together, but... Everybody's gathered around, but somebody has descended upon Netherfield. Well, the town is called Meriton. Netherfield is... Netherfield Park is let it last. That is such a famous line. Yeah, Meriton is where they live, but Netherfield Park has some new occupants, Corinne. Yeah. Who the fuck could be living in there? Well, it's Mr. Bingley, his sister, Miss caroline bingley and then their friend mr fitzwilliam darcy see I, it's nice to know that carolyn bingley has a full name but i call her jerky mcjerk face so yeah and in the book she has a sister who's <laughs> married to a guy named mr hurst so there's mr and mrs hurst which a lot of other versions leave out for whatever mm. reason yeah. i guess just because they're like eh, we'll just roll these two sisters in the one because that's an actually interesting fact i thought you were going to say fun fact in the book her name is jerky picture face no <laughs> Dang it. and it sucks because i mean mrs hurst doesn't really add much to the story but i've always thought mr hurst was really important because he just doesn't do anything like he's just like a slob and he just like lays about and he's like he's only interested in like hunting and drinking and cards 
And he's kind of like he he's a perfect contrast to like all the other gentlemen at Netherfield. Is it? And he's just like he doesn't act with any kind of decorum or anything. So he's I'm, like the slob versus the snobs. <laughs> I mean, it's just more of like okay, so they call out you know the Bennets for being like oh they're so ill bred they don't have any manners and I'm over here like who so who's Mister Hurts just because he has more money that somehow <laughs> excuses him from. Just laying about on a sofa and not giving a shit about anyone. He's kind of like the Bluto of the of, of the of the Bingley clan. <laughs> like he's not. He is. He is clearly going to start a frat house with his money at some point. If he's that loafing around the couch, going out for hunting and cards, that speaks to me as somebody who's going to go out and start their own frat house. Um, now, they've descended upon Netherfield Park. And everybody, the town is aghast. I don't remember from the 2005 version. You'll have to correct me on this. Does Mrs. Bennett have a sister that yep. yeah, that, that was in yep. the film that we, I don't remember this at well, all. Well, I don't know about the 2005 version, but that is from the book. Okay. So then her sister yeah, comes Mrs. in. Mrs. Phillips. And her, Mrs. Phillips comes in and tells them, oh yeah, the, 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 they've descended upon, and then Mrs. Lucas. <laughs> So this entire scene is kind of based on stuff in the book. Like we don't hear exactly how they heard about, you know, Netherfield Park being let at last. As far as we know, they didn't see, you know, Bingley and company driving into town with their carriages while they were dress shopping. It's just kind of like an amalgamation of different scenes that we just kind of are, you know, it's just narrated in the book of, right. you know, oh, they heard about it and they w- go to talk to Mr. Bennett about like, oh, you got to go talk to him right away. So, oh, I'm glad you can we segue into it. Well, I was going to say, I do find it interesting in the dressmakers scene that how they have Jane remark specifically upon Bingley and they have Lizzie remark about Darcy. Mm-hmm. So already kind of forming that connection between the two couples. Yeah, I, I, th- there's there's a plan hatched from moment one in Mrs. Bennett's head. Well, of course. I mean, two eligible rich gentlemen roll into your neighborhood and you have five unmarried daughters. Why wouldn't you think like, hey, this is an opportunity? Not I'm, only could they marry, they could marry well. Yeah, they do. They could they could make sure that, yes, Mr. Collins will get the money. But we'll get this money instead. <laughs> they're trying to cut their. They're trying to even out their losses. <laughs> yeah. Again, they're. Tr- she's just trying to make sure that they're provided for after their father dies. She. They're. They're trying to save their pride. Sure. Yeah. 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 I went there, and it wasn't a good idea. But we can. We can. We can then say though. Actually, before we get to Mr. Bennett. Because that scene is great, but I have never seen—I have never seen a carriage ride fixed on who's going to get to the hotties first. And it's not even like they're directly going to Netherfield to go talk to the gentlemen. Yeah. They're going home to go talk to their husbands so they can go talk to the gentlemen. But it's all designed to get to the hot to the hot rich guys first. That's the goal. And the fact that you watch and Mrs. Bennett's just like speed it up, speed it up. Like pick and up actually, the pace. I saw some pretty interesting foreshadowing there because, you know, initially like okay, so the Bennett's are in the lead and then the Lucases come in and they take the lead. Mm-hmm. And then of course the Bennett's end up winning at it the end because that's what exactly what happens is like you know charlotte gets married first before all the bennett sisters yeah but then of course the two bennett sisters marry 
you know, Bingley and Darcy at the end. So they end up kind of winning in terms of, you know, more husbands, better husbands, all that stuff. It'd be interesting because of the way it starts with that carriage race. If you were to have like two ESPN commentators commenting on the entire movie throughout and tracking the progress of the Lucases versus the fucking Bennetts. And keep a little scorecard. Yeah. The- <laughs> I don't know. One husband for the Lucases. Hi, John Madden here over at ESPN 9, uh, the the literature Ocho. crowd. No, <laughs> the, the, ESPN Ocho. <laughs> oh, eight, actually, ESPN 8, the Ocho would cover this. Yeah, John Madden here for ESPN 8, the Ocho. Uh, we're covering here the Lucases are gaining a speed on the marriage front. It looks like Charlotte's going to get married. But what's this? Oh, oh, oh. Step back, ladies and gentlemen. It looks like the Bingleys and the Bennets are not a done deal yet. We've still got a bit of a tension there. Might be an issue. And what is this? Darcy and Bennett? They could be. Sparks are flying, but nothing has started a flame. Stay tuned. Now brought to you by this ad for Doritos. A nice big old ad featuring celebrities. That makes no sense. Anywho, we get to Mr. Bennett. Mr. Bennett's my favorite character in Pride and Prejudice. Oh my gosh, he's amazing. But I've he has re- such personality, and because he just has to put up with so much bullshit. I read, I read somewhere when I was doing research for this that there are scholars who look down on Mr. Bennett for caring so little about his daughter's um, fate. That's probably deserved, but, at least partially. He does he, some of the the some of what happens is brought about because of his neglect. Yeah, he's just kind of like oh. I I was supposed to do that thing. Oh, okay. I mean, they don't get to it in this version, but the whole bit about Lydia going off to Brighton with the officers and the soldiers, mm-hmm. that could 100% have been avoided by him. But he's like, no, we're never going to get any peace in this house if she doesn't go. So I'm going to give her my blessing because I just want peace and quiet. Yeah. And then, of course... Bad stuff happens. That's lesson. Lesson to all the fathers out there: don't let your fifteen-year-old daughter go out with Wickham, or anyone, or anyone. Well, she's got to go home and study. Yeah, go home and study. Watch YouTube. Anything but going out the door. Um, But Mr. Bennett here is played by Edmund Gwen, otherwise known as Santa Claus, (laughs) from Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. Didn't know that. You didn't know? Oh my God, Edmund Gwen. So much more than that. Did you know he's in two Jack Benny movies? Oh, gosh. Charlie's aunt and the meanest man in the world. But he is also, he's an accomplished actor who's been in several different films. He was in Foreign Correspondent with Hitchcock and The Trouble with Harry with Hitchcock. Uh, Trouble with Harry is one of his later roles. I love him in that. It's it's an adorable role where he gets to have this like old old person love story plot. Here, though, mm-hmm. he is driven to the point of apathy, <laughs> as Mr. Bennett is well to do. I mean, um, if you're the only guy in a house full of six women, many of whom are loud and just, you know, silly. I mean, like, especially like five teenage or young adult women. Did, do you think what, what what do you think got him through it? Because he didn't have alcohol. <laughs> yeah, because I was going to say he doesn't have an iPad. He doesn't have the MCU or or Steven Seagal movies or um, Arnold Schwarzenegger he, movies. I feel like in the book, he's like in his study a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like the, you know, you don't go in there unless like he specifically invites you in. Well, Mrs. Bennett will just barge in whenever she wants, though. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Mrs. Bennett's nerves are something that he has had to put up with for years. <laughs> and... I 
I love their interaction because it's actually like putting aside the pride and prejudice of it all. It's 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 really the example of watching just two solid actors of the era playing into this kind of comedy routine because Mary Boland gives gives this wonderfully nerve wracking performance mm-hmm. as Mrs. Bennett, and it complements to Gwen's just kind of like reserved approach. Yeah, it's honestly, like watching a comedy team. <laughs> even though this, even though this version is truncated shortened compressed whatever you want to call it they get the bennett's right mm-hmm. mrs bennett is so over the top and ridiculous and borderline narcissistic mm-hmm. and then mr bennett is just like trying to get through it all <laughs> he's he <laughs> poor man <laughs> yeah but the difference that i noticed between this and donald sutherland let's say because it's Edmund Gwen, he is showing a warmth that always exists in that man. And so it's almost like it's not that he doesn't care. It's just that he doesn't process information the way his wife does. Mm-hmm. And like, I guess that there's like this theory around that, like he's like he's a person who married, married rather impulsively to Mrs. Bennett. Yeah, it says in the book that they married very young mm-hmm. and that he just you know, married her because he thought she was pretty. Yeah. And, you know, realized afterward, like, maybe that was the bad, you know, a bad choice. I could have been anywhere, but yeah. You know, they have such different personalities, such different dispositions. Mm -hmm. So that marriage is, you know, not the best. No, but it's it's not like they put up with each other. They don't necessarily like love each other. You know what I mean? I I get it. It's 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 a way to go about things. But we are we are given into the plot in which to basically kick off the Ma and Pa Bennett marriage farm, uh, as I've been referring to it in my head, because um, we get the first like M- Mr. Bennett hold the ball. Is that that's the next scene, right? What? Oh, are you talking about the Meriton Assembly? Yeah, the Meriton Assembly. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. It's just a public gathering oh, that okay, the town gotcha. puts on. Yeah. So the so the the yeah, town the Bennets put- aren't hosting it. Okay. So no, the, then I got that confused. So so the Meriton Assembly is held, and this is where we're going to start introducing ourselves, our Bennett characters, to our Bingleys and Darcys here. And Wickham. And Wickham. although Wickham kind of gets a little. He is introduced way earlier in this movie than he is in the book. Yeah. In the I've, book, he's not introduced until after uh, Jane and Lizzie come back from staying at Netherfield. And I, if I remember correctly, like one, well, at least the way they did it in 2005 version, they're searching for Ribbon and that's when they meet Wickham. Yeah, I don't think that happens in the book. No, I don't but, like, that. but my point is you're, you're right. It, right. it happens later. But in, in a way, it's interesting because the well, way... Well, because it's so compressed, they really just have to get like all the big characters like in as soon as they can. Yeah, and Wickham, he is technically an important character, but he also is... He's not in it very much. He, yeah. That's... He's in, like, what, three scenes? Yeah, the reason he's important, though, has to do with Darcy, so we need him in there. And we sort of need a villain here. We, we kind of need a villain, and Wickham is... A piece of shit so yeah he's pretty much the villain of pride and prejudice yeah he is and like and what's interesting is that his villainy is extended not to our two leads but to side characters um and we get the introduction of Lawrence olivier as mr darcy here let's talk about Lawrence olivier portraying mr darcy here 
And I guess within that, we can also talk about Greg Arson as Elizabeth. And we've already kind of touched on Elizabeth, where she's Garson's getting the role down. Um, but like with with Darcy, I feel like there's no way around it with this character. He's gonna come off as an asshole in the beginning, and such is the plot. And I think depending on the performer, it's going to affect your ability to appreciate him down the line in the story and accept his actions. Yeah, he definitely has to be an asshole right at the very beginning. comes with the territory. Mm -hmm. But I do think that this version, two things. They make him fall in love with Elizabeth a lot faster. And they make him a lot more sympathetic a lot sooner. Or at Mm -hmm. least like he comes across as like trying to be nice. Yeah. In the book, at least, like, Darcy is struggling with his attraction to Elizabeth pretty much the whole first half of the book. But the problem that I see with that performance, and one of the reasons why I I have to give Laurence Olivier marks against him, is that because they try to make him nicer sooner, which I saw through this immediately, I was like, this is a golden age Hollywood tactic. We know he's going to be our love interest by the end. Mm -hmm. We have to make him likable in some form. This is the factory mentality going. As a result of that, he he seems like he's flipping switches a bunch. He goes from cold to hot. He, like it's he's hot then he's cold he's yes then he's no he's in then he's out you know the song like that like he is literally switching gears a couple times when we first meet him one of the things he says is it goes along the lines of like i, I have no wish to dance with the commonality and then in the neck and he refers directly to possibly dancing with miss bennett and then in literally the next cut we see him asking Elizabeth to dance. See, again, it doesn't make sense in this version because in the book, those are two different scenes. Mm-hmm. So at the Meriton Assembly, he does diss her. He does say, like, I don't want to, you know, dance with a woman slighted by other men, which they changed that line in this version. He's like, I'm not, you know, going to give consequence to the middle classes at play. Yes. Which is yes. much more of like a classist line yeah. than in the original where it's just more of like, He's dissing her specifically. To which my response was, fuck you, rich boy. <laughs> but, but in, right, but in the next, like, later, you know, like a week or so later, they have a different get together at somebody's house. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he's like eyeing her and he's like, oh, mm, you know, she kind of cute. Like, maybe we should dance. And so he does ask her to dance. So, yeah, that comes across a little bit weird in this version. Yeah. But it makes sense when you're like, oh, that's why. Because, again, they're compressing two different scenes from the book into one. And they definitely set up more of this, like, juxtaposition between him and Wickham directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because in the book, they never, like, interact like that. No, anywhere. no, 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 no. Like they're, they're not. They're, they're never even in the same room with each other. They're distant from each other, but they're but every like, Wickham hears pray tell of Darcy. Darcy hears pray tell of Wickham. But and and you always see the like the looks on their faces, like like. But this is not. But I I in a sense for the Golden Age Hollywood of it all. I kind of like that scene where they cross paths right there. and you. I, no, I like it too. Again, it creates more of a direct juxtaposition yeah. between Wickham, who's like who's very open, very friendly, going to engage in conversation, versus Darcy, who doesn't want to dance, doesn't want to talk to anybody, and is just a complete asshole. Yeah, and Darcy's 
Darcy as a result, like by contrast, we see Elizabeth who the way Garson's playing her, like, I feel like she's hitting all the notes properly. You know, she's she's got a compassion. She's got smarts. She's not going to let some... She's not going to let a man twist her around like that. Right. At least, well, unless he were to flex his hand. You know, that's possible. That's something that might warm her heart a little too much. I don't know. Um, but he... She, she, Garson's pulling off the role correctly, and I feel like Olivier's character, because we have to reveal so much about him, we're trying to smush all of his emotions into the front half Mm -hmm. so that it's made clear he's not a bad guy, he's not a bad guy, right? But, But consequently, you can give Wickham the deceptive layer of being a suitable mate and let him slowly unravel to be the asshole that he is. I think it would have worked better if we had gotten more time with Wickham Mm -hmm. and it could have almost been set up as this sort of, you know, like, will, which one will she end up with? Yeah. Because when I first saw it in the 1995 version, like I kind of watched it like concurrently with reading the book for the first time. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know that, It was going to be so obvious that Darcy and Lizzie are going to end up together, especially after you meet Wickham, because you're like, oh, he's handsome. He's a soldier. He's like very sociable, very amiable, and he likes her. And I'm like, hmm, maybe this Wickham is the guy she ends up with. They, I don't know, take down it's, Darcy it's, together, this, this, whatever it is. This is literature. Never trust a suave motherfucker in literature, especially, especially English literature written by Jane Austen. Mm. <laughs> I mean, Very true. yeah, I mean, and I'm not even an Austin reader and I can tell you that that's a trope. You just don't trust, don't trust a suave motherfucker. You don't trust Brom Bones. And you don't tr- Except for Henry Tilney. Henry, He's the OG. Henry Tilney. From, from Northanger Abbey. Oh, okay. So then that's, that's good. I to know. know like that was it. like when you introduce or when you get introduced to Henry Tilney in Northanger Abbey, you're like, he's almost too good to be true. Like. Is something up with him? Yeah. And no, 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 no. He's, he's, he's just, a classy motherfucker. He, yeah, he's just who he is. And I wanted to bring us before we close us out of the uh, out of this gathering. I have a production report. Mm. Greer, what is it? This is from Gab, the Gab column by Elta Durant. Uh, from this is a wonderful Valentine's Day, nineteen forty story. Greer Garson saved paychecks for a large number of extras on Metro's Pride and Prejudice by working in big ballroom scene in spite of illness. As a result of her early gesture, actress was bedded with severe flu attack. She apparently did that while on the flu. Wow. (laughs) Good for her. Good for her indeed. I really hope MGM didn't give her any pep pills to get through the day. I really hope that that didn't happen. <laughs> but uh, that's an interesting who knows? that's an interesting thing. And actually, a week prior in filming, it comes a little bit later, but the, we're going to talk about it when they're out at the the garden party. Um, you have um, that was shot out at Bush Gardens in Pasadena, um, and this report from the day before on the thirteenth um, had Leonard taking Lawrence Olivier and Frida an escort. Uh, to go out for scenes for the film, and then they would return Friday for footage with Garson. Little do they know what's going to happen there. So it's interesting. It's it, it shows Greer Garson was a trooper. I mean, that's kind of like the whole thing that came out after Encanto was nominated at the Oscars that they said Stephanie Beatrice recorded um, her big number while she was in labor. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. 
that what <laughs> i didn't hear this oh yeah oh my god that oh that 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 kills me i i'm gonna think of encanto a very different way now <laughs> anyway yeah no 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 but anyway back to the bennett clan and not the uh family madrigal um but um this is where we're getting to the whole mrs bennett pushing her marriage schemes further <laughs> i'm sorry it's, it's she she comes from a place of love she well but she love. has the mac- you know, she cares she, she cares about she wants the best for her daughters but, but she is so overbearing and just has no filter she, whatsoever she has the she and there's a slight tinge of the evil machinations of mrs tweedy and her homemade chicken pies like she is just so determined to get to, to make this shit happen at any cost and and sometimes she's the one ruining the prospects. Yes. As we find out from Darcy later. Yes. But her her big plan here is that she is going to send out Jane to meet with Bingley. And then, then and then they see that there are clouds up in the air. There's gonna be a storm. So you don't take that carriage, you ride horseback in sheer clothing. Yep, that's from the book. <laughs> yep. Just to think the 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 way that this is, I know how I'm going to get my daughter married. I'm going to get her sick. Well, in the book, it describes how basically Jane was invited over. I can't remember if it's tea or if it's lunch, but it was with the sisters, uh, Miss Bingley and Mrs. Hurst. Mm-hmm. Like Charles Bingley wasn't even supposed to be there, right? And so that's why you know Mrs. Bennett is almost like. Now you're going to have to stay the night. Like, you got to yeah. make sure you see Bingley. You're not riding all the way over there for nothing. Yeah. And um, the, the the they get the doctor checking in on them. And the doctor is actually somebody who will come into play in a later episode of uh, Ballyhoo for the Hound of the Baskervilles. But this Scottish doctor uh, comes out and says, like, all right, stay here for a week. So they're going to have a week of getting to know each other time. Which is funny because they combine multiple different scenes like from different evenings in that week mm-hmm. into just one scene. Yeah. It's, ah. it's, it's, I, you know, I, I. It's another one of those instances where you see, you know, all of a sudden like everybody just has like ADHD or something and they can't, you know, they're playing cards. No, they're reading. No, they're talking, you know, walking around the room and everything. It's like that's because those are all from different scenes in the book. Yeah, because everything from here, I'm not going to lie, plays out in scattered fashion to some degree or another because the the conversations are more, are more important than the plot outline in some respects because it shows Elizabeth and Darcy slowly but surely coming to respect each other. Well, I mean, I don't know about or, that. Well, not respect, but like <laughs> well, there there are moments of like acceptance rejection pride and prejudice that Uh, line yeah that yeah we'll (laughs) we'll get to that yeah yeah so again especially here at netherfield you see that darcy is basically a simp for elizabeth already yeah which again is not really the case in the book like he's definitely attracted to her but he's actually mad at himself for how attracted he is to her yeah and he's like i have to be very careful not to give her too much attention or she'll think that i'm like into her yeah so and then you know again like elizabeth's sentiments toward him don't change until after he proposes at hunsford 
which is like midway through the book, but like with 30 minutes left in the movie. Right. So, but didn't you? Didn't we had a lot more scenes of Darcy being in love with Elizabeth. And like very few scenes of Elizabeth being in love with Darcy. I I would make an argument for a scene coming up in the garden with the archery thing. Yeah, there, and mostly there, because that scene is kind of just conjured out of thin air. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, she does kind of start to warm toward him a little bit in that scene. Yeah, I, I, I just, I get the feeling that it's it's one of these detriments that we're finding here within Golden Age Hollywood is that like especially if you're adapting a literary work, you're going to have con- a, a, con- a condensing of the material that is not going to satisfy fans. But I would look at this from the perspective of people who might not have been educated enough to read the book at the time, and maybe only saw, and or maybe only saw the play version by Helen Jerome. Mm-hmm. If this is what they know. And I'm not saying that that archery scene is in Helen Jerome's play because I cannot comment. I've not read that script. But I can guarantee that like this this adaptation that we're seeing and how it's con- and how it's like truncated is is appealing to a mass audience. And as you say before, like and we'll, and we'll wrap it up within that is that if it gets somebody into Austin, that's a benefit. Um, but. I understand how it doesn't flow well with the natural narrative that's supposed to happen with Darcy and Bennett because it doesn't. Right. It's almost like when you're talking about A Song of Ice and Fire, the book series versus Game of Thrones, Mm -hmm. because it's like, yeah, in a sense, they're kind of the same characters or it's like an adaptation of the same character. But they're, you know, sometimes their backgrounds are different or their, their, you know, whatever, their characterization, their personalities. So you end up having two completely different versions of the same character. And we see that with this movie, you see like book Darcy who doesn't want to admit his feelings, who, you know, represses them and tries to hide how attracted he is to Elizabeth versus this movie's version of Darcy. Who's just, you know, simping for Elizabeth, like at the drop of a hat, like he insults her and then immediately just, Loves, you know, he's head over heels for her. And by consequence, as you already mentioned, the Bennett family is so well-rounded in this movie. And it, it, like to the point where when they when their plan succeeds <laughs> um, and Jane has got an in with the Charlie Bingley um, and, and his little boudoir bedroom, um, they, they come back for a full report, essentially. <laughs> and I love what Mr. Bennett says. He says, well, we're hoping Elizabeth can manage to catch a cold of her own and stay long enough to get engaged to Mr. Darcy. Then, if a good snowstorm can be arranged, we'd send Kitty over. But if a young man should happen to be in a house, that young man who likes singing, of course, who can discuss philosophy, married could go. Then, if a dashing young soldier in a handsome uniform should appear for Lydia, everything would be perfect, my dear. (laughs) Which, of course, ends up happening by the end of the movie. Yes. Not necessarily the end of the book. I I, I agree. But I love that Bennett's got every single plot figured out for, like, how am I going to get these daughters out of the house? (laughs) He's like, and and it's just like, my, my, my wife's full of nerves, but maybe she's got a point. If we just... If we just fix these positions, if we just make them happen, <laughs> you will it into existence. Like that Jim Carrey fellow, he willed it into existence to be a million dollar actor. We could just will it into our existence to have our mar- our daughters married off. Like, and also I know a part of it is, is also Bennett's 
Ben, Mr. Bennett is treated as kind of like a lackadaisical, laconic, kind of like sardonic figure. Like he's like he's he's very he very much like he's sarcastic to a T. It's kind of sad we don't get more time with him in this version. I, I he's agree. He's not in a lot of scenes. Yeah, I agree. And it's Edmund Gwen, so I would want way more of him. But uh, I want a six-hour miniseries version with this cast. Yeah, I agree. Like, just take the BBC script, but just do it. Like, dig up everyone who's in this cast who's dead already and just get them out there playing it. I want to see this. Hey, hey, hi, Louie. It's Greer. Hey, you know, I've done BBC TV. You don't know what TV is, but don't worry. It's going to ruin you. What if we did... <laughs> A six-hour version of Pride and Prejudice, you know, did it on television. What the fuck? No, get back on set, Greer. <laughs> like, I would love. You know what? Actually, jokes aside, Gone with the Wind just came out. Four hours. Yeah. People sat through that. It's the highest-grossing movie of all time, adjusted for inflation. I don't understand. Louis, Why don't we have a four-hour version of Pride and Prejudice? Louis B. Mayer, you fucked up. You could have dismantled Gone with the Lens legacy if you had just done a six-hour version of Pride and Prejudice. Even four hours. Even three four. hours. I would have been fine with even three hours. Three and a half. Whatever. What? Just more than two, please. Yeah, no, Corinne, it's Louis B. Mayer. We're not going to do that, but how, I'll tell you what. How about I retroactively put in some hand flexes in this version of the movie? Will that no. help? No, no, no. No, you public don't know what you want. <laughs> I'm Louis B. Mayer. I know what's right for you. <laughs> I think it would have been interesting because, like I said, the proposal, the Darcy proposal scene is about an hour and a half in, mm-hmm. and that is the halfway point of the book. Yeah. So you could have done another hour and a half of, you know, Lizzie Inter- intermission. and it's all a, that stuff. Intermission is a great title card that can be used if you so choose to use it. Um and now, as they're doing their report back for marriage, we also have to deal with Mr. Collins. Oh, boy. <laughs> Mr. Collins. Here he comes. I have heard much, madam, of the charm and beauty of your daughters. Madam, I have heard much of the charm and beauty. Oh, heavens, what a pudding face. Perhaps he has beauties of character. Yes, perhaps, my dear, but we shall see. I trust I've not kept you waiting, sir. Not at all, sir, not at all. Can we also queue up, I'm going to queue up in the background his little, his his musical score that makes him sound both dignified but goofy. That's exactly how to describe <laughs> Mr. Collins. It's, it's, it is how to describe Mr. Collins. And listening to that score, just like next time you watch it if, or go back to those clips of him, listen to that score. It reminds me of that Family Guy joke of Fat Man being followed by a tuba where it's like, no, the music is fitting the character that they are putting on screen. And I both love it and hate it. <laughs> um, but Mr. Collins here. Interesting that he's, they say he's a librarian for Lady Catherine in this version. He's supposed to be a parson. Mm-hmm. He's supposed to, you know, she. he is under her patronage. Yeah. The esteemed patronage of Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Yes. By the way, played by Melvin Cooper. Melvin Cooper. 
Yes. You don't know who Melville Cooper is? Uh, I will tell you. I was the sheriff of Nottingham in The Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938. So, mm. you see, I'm... I don't I'm, think he's menacing enough to be a sheriff of Nottingham. No, but I'm just goofy enough to be Lady Deca- Lady, De- <laughs> Lady Catherine's patron. I am also a goofy motherfucker. <laughs> Look at Mr. Collins. In my first exposure, like in understand, my first understanding of this character and what he's supposed to be comes from the 2005 version. I'd seen clips of this, but I didn't get a full sense of who Mr. Mr. Collins is supposed to be. Yeah, and they definitely crank up the awkwardness in yeah. the 2005 version. Yeah. He, and I don't think he's supposed to be quite that awkward. He's supposed to be more of a a boob. Like, he's just he's just so goofy and weird, and he has absolutely no self-awareness at all. No, he doesn't. He just knows. But I, you know what I appreciate is that he's like, th- this Melville Cooper plays him. He's just like, I'm like, I'm, I'm so sorry that I get to inherit everything. Like, this seems unfair. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't remember him being that courteous. <laughs> well, he is in the book. Like, he does want to, like, make amends or whatever he says. And, of course, then that leads to the conversation in the movie mm-hmm. where he talks about marrying one of the daughters right in front of them. And then we get that cutaway shot of, like, but who will it be? <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. That was so awkward. I'm like, why are you talking about this? Like, they can't hear you. I They're was, right there. I was angry at the screenwriters. And then I was angry at the film editor going, like, why did you cut to single shots of every one of those? Like, this is a fucking trailer. <laughs> like, that was... That's a shot for the trailer of like the Bennett sisters. I mean, maybe it was. Maybe they used it for the trailer. I didn't watch the trailer prior, so that, that that was my problem. I should have done that. But that 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 shot was just so jarring. And yes, the idea that he is that that he is being this bold in front of them. I guess it's again to expedite plot because it's not too long after that that he proposes to Elizabeth. Right. And that that's the scene that I want to talk about because it's blocking. Robert Z. Leonard is really good. He keeps it locked off. But he'll only pan either way. The blocking of it, though, is just so well-timed. Like the way that Collins moves and Gar- Gar- that Cooper moves and Garson move. It's just so fucking fl- I would love to watch it on a stage. And like, and I know that that makes it seem like, well, then Zach, then it's not good filmmaking. It's like, no, you're still watching their footwork. You're still watching their body movement. You're watching a camera know how to time itself for that movement. I'd like to know how many takes it took to do that because that can't be easy to time that correctly, like in any Golden Age Hollywood film. Um, and just like in the 2005 film, it's just as awkward. And um, and but I think it's a little bit more. Oh, and they actually let her off easy. Yeah, like Collins, like he has this whole long speech in the book, and poor Lizzie is just like, oh, I gotta sit through all this bullshit before mm-hmm. I can reject him. Yeah. So yeah, I mean he he gives a very compressed version of his speech, but again, the spirit of the thing is right. Like he does talk about like how Lady Catherine wants him to marry, how he felt like he should marry one of the Bennett daughters as a sort of recompense for inheriting the estate after Mr. Bennett dies, which in theory is not a bad idea because then, you know, one of the sisters will become mistress of the house. And theoretically, you know, depending on the circumstances, they could let 
their sisters continue to live there if they didn't have husbands. Yeah. So honestly, it sucks that he asked Lizzie, who's like probably the one, the only one of the sisters who would turn him down flat. Do you just, you have have Mr. Bennett peering in, going like, oh, you you moron. You could have picked Mary's right there. She's just dull enough to fit right into your schemes. And the 1995 version... And I don't think this is ever really brought up in the book from what I remember, but the 95 version does give some like vibe that Mary actually likes Collins. And given that they're both kind of bookish, they're supposed to be very well read and they're all about like philosophy and religion and stuff. Okay. They probably wouldn't. I mean, they would probably work to some degree as a married couple. All right, Corinne, I'm going to step in here into Austin land here as a, as a, you know, that's it. a movie, right? That's, that's true. <laughs> I mean, I've not I seen go it. I've to not, Austin land. I've not seen it. I'm going to step into Austin land though here for a minute. And I'm going to, I'm going to tell the, the Austin community here. I really think we need to authorize fan fiction as official canon for a world in which Mr. Collins gets rid of Charlotte and marries Mary. I mean, Because think maybe. about it. How often do we think about Charlotte? Not often enough, but not often, period. Uh, yeah, this is a version. Charlotte's nice. I guess what I'm saying that is because Charlotte's nice. She's not doing any harm to anybody. In fact, she's she even says early on, like, oh, I'm not as beautiful as the Bennett sisters. Oh, and she's like the most gorgeous woman in the room. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, I'm not as beautiful as everyone else. And you know what? I, I like humility, especially when it's well lit by the cameraman. I know. <laughs> Like she's got to have a great sense of humor if that's the case. And by the way, Mrs. Bennett's line to that of just going like, "Well, it pays to have both beauty and smarts in 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 more than one daughter." Goodbye, (laughs) like that. But yeah, no, I'm serious. We need to retro. We need to. We need to dig up Jane Austen, extract her DNA, bring her back to life, and make her change the novel so that the fans won't get pissed. (laughs) I kind of wish like Mary is the other than Kitty is the only daughter that's explicitly not married at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. So it would be kind of interesting if she did get with Collins. Yeah. I and agree. it would give Lizzie an excuse to go see her, whether it's, you know, whether it's Charlotte or whether it's Mary at Hunsford. Lizzie and, still has an excuse to go and visit. And it would give an excuse to give Mary more things to do. I know, right? <laughs> poor like, Mary. Poor Mary. Ah. Uh. Although I'm glad Lizzie has a best friend. That's true, yes. And Charlotte is not a bad best friend to have. Um, And thankfully, like most good best friends, she takes the fall for her other friend because she marries Collins instead. that's so weird. (laughs) I'm so... Every version, thankfully, points out how weird it is. Mr. Bennett's... Mrs. Bennett's breakdown at that revelation. (laughs) (laughs) I like Mary Boland just losing it. And like looking like she's about to die. <laughs> yep. It is just it is just wonderful to watch her have these conniption fits over She does such a great job. She missed it by that much. She's like the Don Adams of the forties. Missed it by that much marrying my daughter off to the rich boy. Um now we get Elizabeth visiting Charlotte and Mr. Collins being the patron of Lady Catherine takes them all to Lady Catherine's Rosings Park. Rosings Park. And we get 
Edna May Oliver. This lady is dope. We were talking a little bit about off screen. She mm-hmm. has a face that you can't forget. <laughs> She's I like her in this version. Like she is a lady I like Catherine. her more than Judy Dench. <laughs> I like Judy Dench. She I think this lady Catherine just She's another one of those, like, she doesn't have a filter. Mm-hmm. Like, she and Mrs. Bennett are similar in this version, and I kind of like that energy. Yeah. That they're, they're sort of the same character, but not really. But they're but 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 they're two different ends, and they, but their energy and their insistence is similar. Oh, yeah. And they both like to get their way. Yeah, and the pomposity that Edma, Edma May Oliver presents is just fire, like, or lit. As, as young folk might say. This thing is, she is just a grand old actress. Playing one of, I mean, there's not, we talked about Wickham being the villain. She's an antagonist. Lady Catherine's an antagonist. I would say she might be more of a villain in the book. In this version, she's not. No, because they give her a good out by the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which we'll get to. Yeah, we'll get to. That's some bullshit. Yeah, that is some bullshit. But I, but also at the same time, I like it because it gives Edmund May Oliver like a. No, I'm glad they have that scene, it's, but it's, it's just for the kind actor- of yeah. undercut by the revelation that comes after it. Yeah, it's it's more like. It's more I'm happy for the actress than the character. <laughs> Does that make sense? Um, now, funnily enough, Edna May Oliver has a little bit of things to do with the production of this film because she was under doctor's orders. This is 1940. This is not too long before her death. She was under, under doctor's orders not to start her day's work before 1 p.m. To enable, to, to enable her to be ready because she needed a certain amount of sleep to be ready each day. So Metro shifted its shooting hours from 1 p.m. until 10 p.m. rather than the normal early start time. That's how much she was respected. She had already been nominated for an Oscar for Drums Along the Mohawk. She is she was a consummate character actor. That unfortunately this is one of her last among her last films. But man. I mean what a, it's a good encapsulation of what I she know, can right? do. Yeah. I love it. And true to Lady Catherine, she is I can't say the word because it would sound rude to women. Bitchy. Yay. Thank you for saving me. Bossy would also work. She's she's definitely a micromanager. She likes to do everything herself. Yeah. And she wants to be in everyone's business. Yeah. Everyone's business. She has no problem at telling <laughs> no problem at telling Liz that she can practice her piano in the housekeeper section of the and she's very astute. She notices that Darcy is attracted to Elizabeth pretty much immediately. Yeah. Probably because she doesn't appreciate that Darcy is giving Elizabeth more attention than he's giving Lady Catherine. I guess we're not about to stop to that. And she tries. Not but you don't think I can't succeed, Corinne? No. No? You don't think so? I bet you I can. I'm Lady Catherine de Bird. I, I, and we also get more Mr. Mr. Collins in there kind of like... We see how much he respects Lady Catherine. She's not to be trifled with. Like, people in the community do respect her. And, you know, it's, it's again, it's Liz Bennett fighting these conventions of, these, these conventions of, of class. And what's interesting is that she's not, like, poor necessarily, but she's, 
she's she's about to be poor, like I guess technically. Yeah, she is a gentleman's daughter, so theoretically she should be the, at the of the same rank as Darcy, because Darcy isn't like titled or anything, but you know, yeah, basically just because of like who her family is and the different connections that she has, mm-hmm. she and her family are looked down upon for their low connections. Yeah. Rather than, you know, like a, the gentry having connections among the mobil- nobility, they're gentry and they have connections among like the tradesmen and like the merchants and stuff. Right. And so they're kind of like lower middle class. I feel like a lot of that gets to be exemplified in the um, at the garden party. Um, which I'm struggling to remember if it happens before or after Lady Catherine. I believe it happens before. but It's before Mr. Collins proposes. That's right. It's before the proposal because Mr. Collins is going after. Oh, yeah. Li- <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, Darcy to the rescue. Yeah, and they have the archery contest and whatever, and Robin Hood wins. And, and no, um, it, it, the we also get the pomposity of class from Sh- Charlotte Bingley, who you mean Caroline. Carolyn Bingley? Sorry, Carolyn Bingley. We get Carolyn's opinions of Elizabeth too, and the Bennets at large. Like she does not like them, and in fact, her vitriol goes so far that it ruins Mister Darcy's pool table later. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I just found it very interesting to kind of watch how they play with class distinction in these very basic scenes. Like it's nothing. It's it's not as substantial as I feel like the book would would have it be. Right, and they don't... In the book, they get more into detail, but the Bingleys are actually new money mm. that they come from. You know, the wealth that Charles Bingley has is, I think it's like his father or grandfather who was a tradesman mm-hmm. who basically made a fortune, and Bingley doesn't have his own estate. He's just renting Netherfield. Right. And so here's a question that I have as we proceed forward, because we're going to be talking about the class distinctions and how they actually end up playing into Darcy's end and all this. Do you find that this adaptation captures the satire that's intended? Mm, I feel like sort it, of. I feel like it misses a lot more than it should. <laughs> Yeah, I would agree with that assessment. I feel like this film is more obsessed with being a pretty movie than being a smart movie. Yeah, it's it's hard because pretty much everyone dresses the same. It's hard to tell like who is, you know, upper middle class nobility versus lower middle class tradesmen when everyone's costumes are equally elaborate and over the top. And let's talk about that for a second on costume design alone. We will use the 2005 version for this. The Bennets are dressed distinctly in what, to what my recollection was, kind of like moderate clothing. Yeah, they're like in earthy, muted tones. I mean, they're literally opening up that movie in a barn, yeah, <laughs> like with with pigs running around on the bridge, like that. That that portrayal, like Mister Bennett's casually dressed, like he could be working at a bookkeeper, like. It's not anything fancy, but because of their desire to show off their gowns by Adrian, they're literally losing an edge to the story that is supposed to be there. And you see that also with the, uh, you know, I don't know, sets or the filming locations, whichever it was, where, you know, at the toward the end of the movie, when you see like Wickham and Lydia coming up with the carriage 
and you get this shot of kind of like the Longbourn lawn mm-hmm. and it's very well manicured, very, you know, like fancy and just like huge. And then, of course, at the end, when Darcy proposes again, you get like this huge garden mm-hmm. with like almost like a, this maze, like hedge mazes going on. The Bennets are, again, lower middle class. They are like among like, you know, if Darcy gets 10,000 a year. Then the Bennets have like a thousand a year, maybe. Yeah, yeah. you know so, something along those lines. So, so as we as as that relates to what we're pushing into, the the key of the confrontation is now going to be Lady Catherine v. Liz, Dawn of Justice, and we have a further interruption because Wickham's been kind of floating in and out of here, and earlier on he said that Mister Darcy and him have never really been close. But also, I don't. I, if I were calling the dialogue correctly, he doesn't like throw Darcy under the under the. Right, he tries to make himself look like the hero. And yeah, he's like, well, Darcy's really the villain, but I won't say that because it would be mean of me to say that he's the villain. What if I? But were, he totally is. Yeah. What if I were to tell you that he's the villain of the movie? Um, well, spoiler yeah. alert, we talked about that. No, but Wickham has fled off with Lydia in what seems like a time skip. <laughs> Yeah, they. (laughs) So basically, everything after the second proposal is so condensed. They skip over, like, Lizzie goes with her aunt and uncle to Derbyshire. They run into Darcy at his home. It's a whole deal. Yeah. You know, she gets to know him better, she gets to meet his sister. Um, and they get to have, again, you get more of those interactions where they're more on an equal footing where she's starting to, you know, like him and he's, you know, very clearly admiring her still, but she's almost like, is he still in love with me? Like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, then, you know, we have the whole Lydia had gone off to Brighton and then, you know, Lizzie finds out that Lydia had eloped with Wickham. So that turns into this whole big search that takes, you know, several chapters. And to give you a context, the way it literally kind of unfolds is the Lady Catherine stuff. Like Lady Catherine walks in when Wickham is in the room with Lydia. I'm like, that's mind blowing to me. Yeah. (laughs) Because those are events that happen weeks apart. But before we get to that, though, like like literally the proposal happens not not too long after the Lady Catherine stuff. We don't even go into the sister upon apart from mention. Although we do meet Lady Catherine's daughter, I think it is. Oh, Andeberg. <laughs> Andeberg, yeah. yeah, who looks, who, she, I like how she's just like, my daughter could do all these things you would want to do or could do. Like she's just trying to build up her daughter where it's like her daughter is clearly not going to do a damn thing. And we get the proposal, which is well acted. It's, it's not bad. Lawrence Olivier delivering, delivering. Pretty I language. find it very interesting. He is so much more, um, like I hate to say, like hands on, but he's he's much more in in her space than I've seen any of the other versions. Like, I, he's you know really kissing her hand and leaning in, like yes, my darling. Like he's, that's Golden Age Hollywood. That's, oh, that's totally. That's Golden Age Hollywood right there. And the reason why I say it's well acted is that it's you're watching Olivier deliver. Oh sure. You're watching him deliver, and you're watching Greer give back too. But and here's a weird fun fact. So in the book, Darcy proposes in the evening because it's like a, around dinner time. Like everyone else has gone to um, Rosings for dinner, and Lizzie is at Hunsford alone because she doesn't feel well with the whole revelation about 
Darcy breaking up Jane and Bingley. So Darcy comes over. He's like, hey, you know, I just wanted to make sure you're okay. And then he proposes to her. And again, so it's the evening. But in this version, it's the morning, which gives me the impression, like, what if he was just, like, staying up all night? Just like, I can't sleep. I can't eat. I need to, like, go and propose to her. I'm going to lose my mind. Just have a... Which I get from this. He's very antsy. Like, he won't sit. He won't stand. You know, he's, like, up and down. He's moving around a lot. There's a... there's He's so nervous. I love it. There's another world where this this film has, like, one of those 360 or 180 shots around him looking at a picture or a sketch of Liz (laughs) just going like and then or like pulling pulling stems out of the daisy going like she loves me she loves me I mean this (laughs) is the Darcy that would do that though I mean he's head over heels in love with her yeah oh my god pro and con list he's writing a pro and con list he probably did (laughs) notebook let's see pros beautiful charming smart cons poor (laughs) (laughs) Poor trash, beautiful, uh, smart, I mean, charming. Zach, tell me, can't when, afford a McDonald's dollar menu burger. So, when you want to propose to a lady, mm-hmm. do you start by insulting her family? No. I mean, do, do you think that that's really a good way to recommend yourself? No. Like, you know what? I'm in love with you, and despite how poor and trashy your family is, <laughs> I'm going to marry you anyway. Isn't that so nice of me? You know, I mean, here, that that can go into a discussion about Darcy as a character that, and w- w- let's use Ryan's reaction to Mr. Darcy as an example. And I, and, and I know... I know that you don't fully agree with it, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt for a second. Sure. Okay. From his perspective, Darcy was an asshole that is not redeemable or like just like just jackass. Yeah. Okay. That impression of Darcy that he has from the BBC version, I want to say, mm-hmm. that's what's actually present in this one because... The Darcy that I saw in that prior version from 2005 does not have the gall to insult Elizabeth's family oh, to no, Elizabeth. Oh, no. T- they all do. That's like from the book. But, but, oh, really? Yeah. I don't remember oh, yeah. that from the 2005 version. Uh, Nope. He totally is like, oh, yeah, you're such a low birth in my rank. And, you know. Uh, oh, Gotcha. I'm telling you, all the Darcys do then this. Never mind, my 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 thing won't go through. But you're right; like that is not a good way. That is not a good way to get. Which on is your what good side Lizzie your... like gets on to him for. She's like, really? That's how you decided to propose to me? It's, and it's like nothing in the world would have tempted me to consider marrying you, let alone insulting my family to my face. You brought up something interesting where that you said that was supposed to play, take place later on. Like it's not supposed to take place in the morning. Right. It's supposed to be in the evening, like around dinner time. That feels like that should be for Hollywood comparison. That should be at night. So it's like contrast. Like it, So it's complementing the situation where she's going to reject him. And it, or, it, or it's a bad situation anyway. Having it bright in the morning like this is just a terrible way to start your day. Like, I've yeah. got to turn down marriage from this jerk. And also, what? My sister has run off with a soldier? Yeah, I'm telling you, like, so many revelations come, like, Within boom, the next run 30 one minutes, after yeah. the other. And the revelation that Mrs. Bennett will, will faint easily unless there's chicken broth around her. <laughs> Perhaps I can force myself. 
to have this chicken broth. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. I, I, she's so over the top. I love she's it. She's great. She's great. But yes, Lydia has run off with Wickham, which is quite a scandalous affair. Um, and for, um, and, but this also comes to the revelation of why Mr. Darcy is the way he is. Yeah. So that's what bugs me about this version is, especially the garden party scene, they're so open and blatant uh, talking about Wickham. And, you know, Darcy's like, you know, I wish I would have someone to defend me as well as you defended Wickham today. And so, so they're so open about it. But then... In the proposal scene, he's just like, where Wickham is concerned, I have nothing to say. Mm -hmm. I'm like, why? Why wouldn't this, maybe this exact moment isn't the time to explain the whole history, but. But you you love this woman, but you won't talk about jack shit about your past. I, you were talking about, you, you were, you you were talking about, you were talking about how like, is it a good idea to propose to somebody by first insulting their family? Is it also a smart idea to not be open about your life with your, with your potential future partner? I think his, his justification is that it would like, it wouldn't be dishonorable to do it. And especially because it involves his sister. Mm-hmm. Like he wouldn't necessarily want that information to get out. So the, the so he's not going to tell anybody what happened unless it's like absolutely necessary, which is admittedly, I think, a good justification for why he reveals it in this version where he's like, you know, this happened to your sister. Well, I think it's about time I told you what happened or almost happened to my sister, which is that Wickham almost ran off with his sister, Georgiana who was almost, you know, Lydia's age and who has this, like, great fortune and all that, so... And they were going to... Um, they were going to elope, and then basically Wickham was going to threaten Darcy into, you know, allowing the marriage. Yeah, exactly. And then, But then he discovered the... Uh, what was it? By, uh, uh, by fortune, I was able to discover the plot in time. Yeah. Which you gotta love. You gotta love the way that... That is accurate it. to the book. He does say he just happens to show up at the right time to stop it. <laughs> So thank goodness for Providence, I guess. I love how Jane Austen might be sitting down writing this going like, well, how's he going to get in there? Hmm. I don't know. Well, I guess it just happens. Well, he does show up. Um, so there's somewhere else and he just happens to show up and just check in on his sister. Yeah. And she's the one who reveals the plot to him. Mm-hmm. But it was by chance that he happened to show up when he did. Right. So with this revelation, though, we have... Darcy as not so much a jerk face. So he's not a Carolyn Bingley. Right. And this is so different. He gets to explain it in person. In the book, he writes a letter, very Mm. long letter. And it talks about two of the charges that Elizabeth had levied against him. Yeah. Which was that he separated Jane and Bingley. And that more grievously, he had supposedly, you know, ruined the prospects of Mr. Wickham. Right. And so he writes his very long letters kind of going through and talking about like his reasoning and his justifications and everything. And then, you know, he's talking about the history of his sister and Wickham in the letter. And then in this movie, he never really answers that first charge about breaking up Jane and Bingley. He only talks about the whole deal with um georgiana and wickham right and 
there might be a reason why things are expediated that go beyond the Helen Jerome adaptation. Apart from that, like it might just be as simple as there is so much in here that this is the only way to condense it in a way that makes literary sense. And I do appreciate that we get a scene, even though it's supposed to be a different scene, but it's a scene where Darcy is trying to, you know, shove down his feelings and he's like, I'm not going to bring it up again. I just need you to know the truth. Mm-hmm. So he is very like open and honest with her, but in a way that he doesn't feel like he needs to impress her his feelings upon her. Yeah. You know what I mean? As far as the marriage is concerned, that right. door is closed. Right. Like he he doesn't need to burden her with his emotions. He's like, no, no, no. There are more important things going on here than how I feel about you. Yeah, exactly. Which which normally I like those kind of scenes, but for here we're I would prefer it's, very, the, it's a very I, sacrificial love. I love it. But I pref- I would prefer the letter. Because it because it does work better for the story that's being told. Yeah, but then we didn't get to, we wouldn't get to see Sir Lawrence Olivier's beautiful face. You know, and as short as this movie is, I need to see his beautiful face as much as possible as Mister Darcy. Well, there there might be a reason why you can't see even more of him because no. I have a I have a production report from March eighteenth, nineteen forty. Robert Z. Leonard has rushed his Pride and Prejudice at Metro along under forced draft over weekends so that tomorrow Lawrence Olivier may be freed for rehearsals with Vivian Lee on Romeo and Juliet, which they start on tour April 8th in San Francisco. And the film still had eight weeks of filming left. Oh, my gosh. So they were working to rush Larry out the door to go back to get away from Greer and get back into the arms of... Vivian Lee. Um, you know, like that. That it, it. I think that once, if the story is true that Vivian Lee was considered for this, I think that once she was not cast, then Lawrence Olivier's interest dropped. Which is, if so, it's a testament to him because you can't tell on screen. I feel like he's giving it. Oh, he's still a consummate professional. Yeah. But that doesn't mean his interests aren't going to peak towards where his loins rest. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I hate to be crude Ew. about it, but I'm sorry. Like, that's. I get it. Yeah. I get it. Obviously, you want to act alongside, you know, the person you have the hots for. Yeah. But, and, and, and especially up, if it was a romantic thing. I mean, if the, you're going to be like, hey, let's play lovers. Up, we are lovers. So that works up, out. They ended up marrying. I know. Yeah. But regardless, though, we're thrust into this Greer Garson as Elizabeth Bennett goes like, oh, my God, I, I think I love him, Jane. <sighs> Which I, don't I think get, I love him, Jane. <laughs> don't get that. <laughs> this is another one of those instances where you just have characters doing or feeling nothing out of nowhere because it's built up so much differently in the book. I'm sorry to keep bringing the book up, but... Do the, in the, it makes more sense. In the book, do they have a scene where Mr. Bennett envisions a Bennett utopia that doesn't have class involved in it? No, that whole thing about them going to, uh, where are they going to? Lud- Margate. 
Yeah. Where they're talking about moving to Margate. That's totally made up for the movie. I love that scene. <laughs> I love watching Edmund Gwen dream as Mr. Bennett of just going like, no, like. It does make for some good comedy, especially like the physical comedy where they have like the parrot and the music box. And then, <laughs> you know, you have uh, Lady Catherine comes in and she sits down on the music box like, wait, what? And then, <laughs> and then Lizzie has to move the parrot and he's like, ah, my poor nerves. <laughs> That, oh my god, the parrot. Thank you for bringing up the parrot. Why is this parrot in the movie? It's not in the book. It's so... <laughs> Why? It's just something weird and funny. I love it, though. <laughs> and especially because it would have picked that up from hearing Mrs. Bennett say it so often, which is even funnier. What if that was Laurence Olivier getting revenge on them not casting Vivian Lee? He's just like, all right, I'll do the movie regardless, but um, I want this parrot to talk. I want this parrot to talk, and I want him to say, "I want him to say, oh my poor nerves, just like Mrs. Bennett.' That's right. You bow to my whims. <laughs> like, I mean, I've heard that, of weirder things happening. I, I, that would be amazing if I found out that just Laurence Olivier was just like insisting on stupid things in the script just because he was betrayed somehow. That parrot is so fucking out of place. I was, I was so certain I was going to see a credit at the end that said Mel Blanc as the parrot. Like that, that thing just unnerve me it doesn't fit in anywhere in this movie yeah but the yeah the whole scene where they're moving to margate is total totally made up totally made up but it's a nice scene that it's appropriate to mr bennett's character i would say so Yeah. yeah but it's 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 thwarted rather quickly because literally in the span of one to two scenes we get the ending of our movie Oh my gosh! So much. It's it feels very like it's a Harry, open door farce. <laughs> it's it's very Harry Potter and uh, what's the last one? Uh, Deathly Hallows Part Two, where just like everything happens in a short amount of time, right? Mm-hmm. It's like they they find out that Lydia's been found. Mm-hmm. Then like two seconds later, she and her new husband pull up. Mm-hmm. Then thirty seconds later, Lady Catherine shows up out of nowhere, and then like. 20 minutes later, Darcy and Bingley show up and propose to Jane and Lizzie respectively. Let's let's not forget that Lady Catherine, the confrontation between Lady Catherine and Liz, I don't know if it's verbatim from the book, but it's given the most attention, like from a dramatic standpoint. And it is it is a very good confrontation. They have scene. elements in there that are pretty much lifted directly from the book. The whole thing where she says that she can make him poor, mm-hmm. that's made up for the movie. Right. But okay. But I do think it's interesting that yeah, she says like I can make him poor and she's you know, Liz is like, I don't I don't care. Like I'm already poor. Yeah. I it, that that's that's fair, but it's still the 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 I think that that's MGM kind of catering to a, a, a more common audience. Sure. And kind of just saying it out loud. Yeah. And it's, it's not the, like... The thing that doesn't make sense, though, is why Darcy feels like Lizzie might have changed her, her feelings toward him. In the book, he has way more to go on. He's like, well, you know, she was, you know nice to me and she was doing this and that and she was like giving me looks and so i'm like well maybe i've got a chance again and so the whole lady catherine thing is kind of it it it, he did not want it to happen it was just kind of like an indirect cause of his you know just 
discussion with her about Elizabeth. I have I have a way to possibly explain it, and it has to do with David O'Selznick. And I'll bring up both Gone with the Wind and Rebecca for this example. When Selznick made those two films, he knew that those books were so popular, and they were pretty much of their era. It's not like Jane Austen in the 1800s. Right. So Selznick knew that the popularity of those books was so large that he would be successful if he virtually adapted it point for point of the books. It's one of the reasons why Gone with the Wind is as long as it is because it's trying to capture... And even then, they still cut out some elements from the book. Exactly, but he chooses like the moments where it's like, no, nobody's going to want to miss this, but he still has to... The script process for that film took so long because they were trying to do both that and tell a cohesive story at the same time. Rebecca does the same thing. MGM is a factory. It's not Selznick. The one thing I will give Selznick ever in all time is that he's an independent artist who's taking control of the property himself and making sure it's fine crafted. MGM is a factory. And Pride and Prejudice, I'm sorry, especially given its fan base, shouldn't belong to a factory mentality. It should be be produced by people who care about the material. And it's the same with most book adaptations. Like, Harry, po- you brought up Harry Potter. There's clearly a care for those books, even if they omit so much from the books in those movies. They still tell a cohesive story that works for each movie. Uh, Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson oh, omitted gosh, a yeah. ton. But that movies, those movies still work. They oh, work yeah. beautifully. And I think that the detriment that we find in with Pride and Prejudice is that this is so much character-based that it's detrimental to the very nature of Darcy. Yeah, you don't get you, you don't know. get a lot of introspection time in. That's the one nice thing about the miniseries is because it's so long, you really get time for introspection and character development. And characters realizing their faults and trying to correct them. Yeah. You know, Darcy with his pride, Elizabeth with her prejudice. Hey, 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 uh, hey. Nah, now nah, you nah. rock that off. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's why the book's called what it is, but, you know. Ah, they said the title of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, where was I going with no, that? No, no, but you, no, you're, 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 you're pointing into the idea that, like, if you've got these two strong characters, it doesn't behoove it, you to. You're right. Co- it is a very plot, or it's a very character driven story. It's not like plot. It's not like Lord of the Rings where you can, like, shave out some action sequences. Right. Conceivably. And Tom Bombadil. You can, you can cut if, that down. Yeah. But, if you compress stuff, things start to not make a lot of sense. Yeah. Like, all of a sudden, Lizzie just loves Darcy out of nowhere. Especially when this is a romantic story at the core of this satire. So that's that's one of the detriments. But even with all of that, I think it can be chopped up to this is a best of or the greatest hits <laughs> of Pride and Prejudice to a certain extent. Because it does, like, we'll, we'll get to the ending here real quick. Uh, like, uh, I, be- I believe it's uh, goodbye, Lady Catherine. I take no leave of you, Miss Bennett. I send no compliments to your mother. You deserve no such attention. I am seriously displeased. I believe that's from the book, like yeah. word for word. And I, I love, love the way Ed May Oliver delivers it. And then she comes out and goes like, she's ready, darling. <laughs> she's yes. Like, I got her fired up for you. Uh, the reveal that Lady Catherine went as his ambassador it just irks me to no end. Yeah, I just... But, 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 
But can I tell you from a movie fan standpoint, I love the idea of that. And then in my head, imagining Lady Catherine riding off on a motorcycle with the song <laughs> Bad to the Bone playing. <laughs> yeah, it that's is- right. That was Cupid. I'm out. <laughs> It is very old Hollywood to, it to is. like have everything kind of tied up nicely and everyone's kind of, there is no real bad guy. Everyone's kind of. Even Wickham isn't yeah. treated as a bad guy. Yeah. At least I in mean, the 2005 version, you see the, the small instances of what Wickham's going to be for Lydia down the line. It's very strange for this story, but like given the era that it's being made in. I kind of have to allow it because that's, I'm not going to get anything else. You know what I'm saying? And they really, I guess other than Lizzie's like, you know, ask me again in five years line to Lydia, we don't really get any hints that Wickham and Lydia are not going to really make for a good marriage. Right. No. They're not a good couple. No. It's almost like they treat Wickham as an opportunist who can be forgiven. Yeah, I would agree with that. Which is in this version. Yeah, which is disturbing because from what you've told me about Wickham, it sounds like Lydia needs to get out as quick as possible. Um, but yeah, then we get, you know, Mr. Darcy and Liz kissing and the 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 end in that garden and the- I will say there was a nice moment where, you know, when Lizzie's telling Jane, like, oh, I love Mr. Darcy. And we get that nice speech from Jane about how she dreams about Mr. Bingley coming back and like meeting her in the garden or riding up on a white horse or whatever it is. And then we get that nice scene of Bingley walking up to Jane. And even though we don't get to hear anything or see anything of what happens, it's just nice to know those two kids end up together. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I prefer the way it happens in the 2005 version. This version, this dual proposal scene happening within a different, like very, very like close proximity of each other was just kind of like. Uh, I mean, two best friends married two sisters. It kind of makes sense to me. The only thing this was missing was Bingley and Darcy going up top. <laughs> Get one wide shot at the end. We're going to be brothers-in-law, man. Pride and prejudice. Like that, that, that it would end like a rom-com from the 90s. Now, um, so the film was released. Uh, In 1940. 1940. The budget was set at about $1,437,000. It earned. Oh, that's quite a bit for that time. It earned. million at the box office. Eddie Mannix's ledgers say that this somehow recorded a loss of $241,000. I want to ask Eddie Mannix why he said that. (laughs) Because that's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. Um, It was well-received. Do you want to hear some uh, correspondence from our... Our, our beloved Bosley Crowther of the New York Times. Sure. This, this, God, this guy. Nah, he's, he's just the worst. Um, what did the old gaffer have to say about the movie? I'll, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll tell you, lady. Uh, she, uh, that, uh, he, this is, you're just going to, you're just going to lose it. The most deliciously pert comedy of old manners, the most crisp and crackling satire and costume that we've seen in this corner can remember ever having seen on the screen. He also praised the casting and he says, 
Greer Garson is Elizabeth's dear, beautiful Lizzie, stepped right out of the book, or rather out of one's fondest imagination, poised, graceful, self-contained, witty, spasmatically stubborn, (laughs) and as lovely as a woman can be. Laurence Olivier is Darcy, that's all there is to it, the arrogant, sardonic Darcy, whose pride went before a most felicitous fall. I like that actually. That's yeah. pretty accurate for Darcy. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm you know, I'm I'm not I'm not against Crowther on this one. It's a delightful movie. Yeah, I think I he. Just, I think I he's active. I think I, he's kind of like me. He's just like I've never read the book, and so therefore I'm just I, going. I off think of, if you haven't read the book before, you're gonna like the movie. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, maybe you might find some flaws, but you might still enjoy it for what it is. Well, here's my problem as a modern viewer of that 2005 film and then this one in in a in a small period of time of a couple of years. I found myself loving the 2005 version more by comparison because of how much it allows the characters to breathe. Even though the runtime is not too far off from this runtime. So I, I love your, uh, your estimation of how, like, the first half of the book is pretty well represented, and then it just goes into maximum overdrive. I would say the same thing about the 2005 version, is that they capture that first half pretty well, but then after the proposal, it just kind of... It's not as bad as in this version, mm-hmm. in the 1940 version, but they still just, like, they start trimming and just... They're like, uh, we gotta hurry, hurry, hurry. You know, we're just cutting out everything. We're just skimming over stuff, and we're streamlining, streamlining. I think that part of the issue with with it, it seems like, is that Pride and Prejudice, the way it sets itself up as a story, has very distinct ways in which to present its characters and introduce them. That it seems to give filmmakers and screenwriters an excuse to shortchange the middle to back half. And I think that is a detriment. I do I do agree with you. Like, even though I've only seen film versions of this, this does seem like it needs to be a miniseries first before a movie adaptation oh. or a longer film adaptation. And I feel like that's just the way that film has become as a medium. Because if you look at Shakespearean play structure, the climax is in the very middle of the play. Right. And the falling action should take about as much time as the rising action. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's very much this like triangle structure, or pyramid structure, whatever. Um, whereas with modern movies, we get a lot of, you know, especially action movies for sure. You know, everything kind of builds up to the big battle or whatever at the end. Mm-hmm. And then there's maybe some like tiny little bit of falling action. And then you get a denouement and the movie's over. Right. So... here's the question maybe you don't even get a denouement in the case of uh, (laughs) what was it I watched was it oh Predator 2 it just like ended so abruptly I'm like what happened to everybody well well there was a setup for a sequel that never happened at the end of Predator 2 that's what happened there but it it posed a lot of cool ideas sure one that apparently is going to be done by um, yeah I know the director at 10 Cloverfield Lane now the film was nominated for two Oscars for uh, best art direction and best best uh, uh, sorry, it was it received an Oscar nomination for best art direction, black and white, mm. uh, for Cedric Gibbons and Paul Gross. So the film gets two gets an Oscar nomination, and to this day on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a hundred percent approval rating. 
I mean, based how many on, people have really seen it, though? Based <laughs> on 10 reviews. Ah, see, there you go. 10 reviews. So we need to get the Austin fan base to go in there and just plunge this like they did Captain Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if people would... I think that there would be a bit of mix on it. Some people might be more forgiving of, you know, like, okay, it's a product of its time. You know, it is what it is. And, you know, we just got to roll with it. And then you're probably going to have, like, purists like me who are just like, I can't get over these, like, 1850s costumes. I just can't get over this very truncated plot and like absolutely no character introspection, no character development. Everything is just so rushed and slapdashed at the end. I think it's a I think it's a good example of how modern audiences look upon adaptations of literary work. I think that the, and they actually have positive and negative ways to look at it through Golden Age Hollywood. This is the only time I can really put gone with the wind in a positive light apart from Hattie McDaniel winning an Oscar and it's the fact that it is very faithful to that book Rebecca similarly very faithful to the book but Pride and Prejudice trimmed out so much and it's the difference between the way people might feel about it's gonna sound weird no Country for Old Men is considered rather very, very faithful to Cormac McCarthy's book. And if not the whole plot, then at least its style and what it's supposed to be saying. Whereas people, when it comes to IP-driven material like a Star Wars um, or a Marvel, when it comes to literary adaptations in that kind of genre field... Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter came under the most scrutiny of recent memory. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, oh, I don't like the Peter Jackson movies because they remove so much. And then I just kind of suffer them as gladly as possible and then remind them, well, I enjoy Peter Jackson's version of it. I know it's not the book. I'm aware that we're missing Tom Bombadil, but I still enjoy those movies. And I think that there is a world where this Pride and Prejudice does a couple of things. Number one, no, it's not extremely faithful and it truncates a lot and it expedites things for the purposes of the factory mentality that it's under and also Golden Age Hollywood. We got to wrap this up and have a happy ending. The other thing it does, though, is that it does provide a standard for how many period costume dramas you see because... There is still to this day a desire for prestige that comes out of this costume drama. It's almost like, it sometimes feels like these films and these adaptations of Anna Karenina, Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, always get remade. Jane Eyre, always get remade because somebody in the studio system wants a costume designer nomination for the Oscars. Um, or they are just really trying to put out a prestige piece. Um, and Or they just know that that is a very well-loved work of literature and that there's already a fan base for it. Yeah, exactly. And it does, and, it, and actually that brings up an even better point. It's a testament to the fact that, you know, a lot of the modern IP that we consider big box office finanza, sometimes it hits hard or it misses hard. 
you look at the box office on a lot of Jane Austen adaptations, they hit a pretty steady, even keel. Right. People want to go either because they're a fan of Austen or, hey, it looks like a classy film that might win an Oscar. Let's go check it out. And then you learn something about Jane Austen or any of the other authors that come from this literary world of English literature that still manages to capture a fan base to this day. And I would say that, especially for Jane Eyre, it's had so many adaptations. Granted, not all of them are theatrical. Some of them are miniseries or, you know, TV movies or whatever. In Val Luton's case, it was a movie called I Walk with a Zombie. <laughs> yep. You ever seen that? No. Oh, ooh. It's Jane Eyre in the Tropics. And mm. it's kind of like a 60-minute visual tone poem. So it's, it's, but it uses the basic plot structure of, okay. um, but it's, it's not trying to be an adaptation, but that's basically what it is. I recommend it. But the vibe I get for some, with so many of these Jane Eyre adaptations is like people grew up with these characters. Mm-hmm. And I think that each production, you know, these actors or, you know, the producers or directors or whoever are like, I want to show my version of these characters to the world. And I think that the same could be said for Pride and Prejudice. Everybody wants to show their version of Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy. We've definitely had a lot of versions of Pride and Prejudice, but I feel like they're very different. Jane Eyre is very much, you know, it's always going to be like the same setting. I've never seen like a modernized adaptation of Jane Eyre. But Pride and Prejudice, I've seen modern adaptations. I've seen it in different cultures, different countries. So We've seen it with zombies. <laughs> seen it with zombies. Seen it, you know, where it's like Bridget Jones' Diary is a very, very loose adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. Starring Colin Faith. <laughs> I knew this yes. would come up for you. Now, no, so beautiful. You brought up adaptations. Yeah, so this is one of the earliest known versions, apart from a television version that apparently happened in the 30s. Again, early television. I didn't think it was going to come up in this discussion today. Um, but we do also have um, uh, the 1980 BBC uh, version with Elizabeth Garvey and David Rintoll. And then the yep. 95 version with Jennifer Ale and Colin Firth. Yeah, that's right. I'll let you say his the name. beautiful Colin Firth. Um, yeah. yeah, the 83 version is, it's plagued by low production value, but I don't think it's without merit. Okay, that's fair. It's just, it's very, a lot of, there were a lot of adaptations of uh, classic British works around that time by the mm-hmm. BBC. They all have very low production value costumes makeup and hair are not like the best and they're all shot on like sound stages and you can just really feel how constricted it is Mm -hmm. but again like i feel like all those actors do their absolute damnedest to make sure that you are buying into what they're selling well sometimes that's all it takes you can have like it's it's no different than what we saw with macbeth um with uh, uh the tragedy of macbeth you can have a pulled back production value and you still have strong actors pulling it off. Sure. And you get, you get the same impact. And in fact, a lot of theater works off of a minimalist scale in certain adaptations of Shakespeare in order to pull off an actor's piece more so than just an elegant theatrical production. Depends on what the artist is going for. There's a version of Jane Eyre. I believe it's a mini series. It's from the eighties, maybe 83, with Timothy Dalton as Mr. Rochester. And it's another one of those like low production value, shot on, shot on like sound stages and all this stuff. 
and he like they everyone in the cast does a great job right and that's maybe one of the better pairings i can't remember who his co-star is but you know they they do play their respective roles so well and you really feel like yeah this is a little weird that this like 40 year old dude is like falling in love with this 20 year old governess yeah it's a little weird yeah but one thing could be said about this though is that we apart from no hand flexing in this movie we are treated to a populist version of pride and prejudice again this this version as many flaws as it has it's not without merit and we were just talking about a bunch of other pieces of literary work that have adaptations far and wide whether it be jane eyre or sense of sensibility like there there are there is such a world of fandom for these stories that seem to still speak to us all these years later. And the version that we just talked about today is just one in the many that will continue onward. I think if anything, this is also a good example of like, well, what does this have to teach us about today? IP has always been a thing. This isn't just because star Wars and Marvel entered the world. IP has been around for years just because it's in the public domain. <laughs> well, where do you think Disney came from? Yeah. A lot of those adaptations were well-known fairy tales and other fantastical stories that everybody grew up with. Bingo. Yeah. It's it's this is a this is an example of how IP works. This is a guaranteed money maker. Even though they didn't have a prior version, that's not to say that people weren't aware of what Pride and Prejudice was. And if MGM wanted a prestige piece for the year, that was a way to get it. Right, and I I just I appreciate the fact that we have a theatrical version of Pride and Prejudice, mm. and we have a version where Sir Lawrence Olivier was Mister Darcy, yeah, and Greer Garson yeah. was Elizabeth Bennet. Like, yeah, that, that, there there's a world where this doesn't exist. There's a world where this is even if we had Norma Shearer and Robert Donat in it, we'd still be treated to an interesting pairing. But I think that this is the perfect casting for a. For a of a, a, a very fine if flawed film, right? And like I said, they get like the dynamic between Mister and Missus Bennett. They nail those characters. Yeah, the version of Lady Catherine they have, maybe not exactly like the book, but I feel like she's so memorable. It doesn't matter. She's Edna May Oliver is pulling off Edmund Edna May Oliver, and she doesn't have to explain herself to anybody except. Edma May Oliver. And Mr. Collins is like perfectly just, what would you say, like dignified but silly? Dignified but goofy. Dignified but goofy. (laughs) He is just that perfect mix of just so weird and just, yeah, anyway. I kind of want Melville Cooper in a series of bumbling detective mysteries. Like that's this the kind like a of Mr. Vibe. Bean or something. He could be an original Mr. Bean given his like oh by the way, before we get to the end here, every time he enters <laughs> they not only play his theme, but he always has his catchphrase like it's a sitcom, like I shudder to think what Mrs. Lady Catherine will think. And you're just waiting for the sitcom audience to go like ha 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 or like it, it, it's it's very manufactured, mm-hmm. just as I would expect an MGM movie to be. MGM is a studio that, out of all the studios that I can look at in Golden Age Hollywood, is the most manufactured for both good and bad. 
on the one hand, it has an identity that is unmistakable for the quality and sheen and the luminous, there's a luminous air about an MGM movie that makes you feel warm, like you're in a blanket in movie land. The consequence to that is that you don't necessarily have an identity apart from a generic warm blanket that you can conceivably manufacture and sell at the grocery store. <laughs> um, I would agree with that. This movie does feel very like comfort food. You would Very old Hollywood comfort food. You could sit down with a bowl of chicken broth <laughs> while you're sick <laughs> and watch this movie. If you ever have any poor nerves, this <laughs> is the remedy for them. Yes, exactly. We can easily say that. But at the same time, this is a studio that has an identity to give you a special effects bonanza like The Wizard of Oz the year before. You can't underestimate MGM, but you, I feel like you have to scrutinize it at times. This is a studio that gave you The Thin Man, but it also gave you gave you uh, the, the Thin Man sequels. And it's not a detriment. I like the Thin Man sequels, but they decrease because they're kind of escaping certain things, but they're gaining something else in return. Right. Uh you know, there's there's a lot of ways to look at MGM, and, and as a studio right now, with the relevance for MGM at this point, you know, a lot has changed since uh, our shop around the corner episode. MGM is now being acquired by Amazon, and it's insane that the Tiffany of motion picture studios has fallen into this point in time. Like, it's so weird. There was a time when MGM was like, you would want to work nowhere else but. And now it's only commodity is James Bond. It's so strange. It's so strange. I, I it's, it's so weird to look at the difference in contrast. It's frankly an example of also what studio leadership leads to. And if anybody working in a studio right now wants a history lesson that will help them prevent a woe in the future... I'd look at the history of MGM first and foremost, maybe RKO second, but MGM first and foremost, because it can show you that pride cometh before the fall, um, not pride before the prejudice. <laughs> um, and on that dumb joke note, Corinne, thank you so much for coming aboard to talk about pride and prejudice, your Jane Austen fandom and how they ruined this adaptation. <laughs> it was a good start. Yeah, a go. good first step. Yeah. So it's one small step for Edna May Oliver, one giant leap for Judy Dench. <laughs> yep. Yep. Let, really quickly, let people know where they can find you around the internet, on the podcasting world. Where can they find you? Um, well, you should definitely give uh, the Real Nerds Podcast a listen. Check mm -hmm. out their website, realnerdspodcast.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Catching Classic, singular. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I think that's about it. Wonderful. And um, I know that we'll want you back on here. Maybe we could talk Sabrina, actually. Sabrina oh, might be a fun one. Yeah. Yes, let's do it. Yeah, I think we can book Sabrina mm. for you. Um, mm. But until then, that is going to wrap it up for this episode of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us on the back end of the show. Coming up on the program, uh, nothing has been pre-recorded as of yet, but I can tell you that I've been reaching out to figure out some new episodes. Um, but additionally, there are things that will be coming to the show in the way of surprises. 
Um, I, I'm working on a, a month dedicated to a certain subject within Hollywood history that hopefully will come to fruition. You'll have to stay tuned and see if that actually happens or not. Um, but until all that, until next time, folks, good night. Good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds Podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Thank you.